This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 800, the 8th anniversary special. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 800. It's hard to believe that eight years ago, I posted my first episode of the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. It was a pilot episode that I did with my wife. Uh, we were in a, an older, it was in our, our first property that we ever lived in together, a condo townhouse in Toronto. Um, I still remember being at the, t- at the at our dining room table and recording that first episode. And uh, her being, I remember me telling her, oh, I probably won't even post this, post this. And I totally posted it. Remember, she dropped the C word a few times. Um, it was a fun episode, and I, at the time, had no idea that I would continue doing this for eight years. Um, and I think a, a big part of that, and I've said this many times in prior episodes, but in part of me thinks I would never have gotten to 800 episodes if I hadn't started interviewing creators. Uh, that's where the show really took off for me personally. Uh, I started doing something that I really loved doing, which was being able to talk to people whose work I've always loved and actually kind of dig into why they did it or how they did it or you know how they got into the industry and, and learning more about the behind the scenes of this industry that I love um, and so fascinated by. Uh, obviously, I love comics, but I'm almost at times more interested in the things that don't happen or the things that do happen because of weird things, crazy things or, you know, how people get jobs and how certain projects come about. And, you know, if Mark White only writes Kazar because Andy Kubert really wants to draw Kazar, like that's... That's a story I want to hear. That's you know, it's those little things that add uh, additional depth to this world of cr- of creativity that I like you know to ingest and read. Anyways, this episode is uh, four different segments. Uh, the first one uh, is going to be uh, with uh, returning uh, returning guest Dan Gabazdan of the Amazing Spider Talk podcast. He's been involved in every Centennial episode of mine since episode 300. His actual his first appearance was on episode 298, um, and then he's been on every Centennial ever since then. So uh, it's always an, a, a true pleasure to have him join. Um, you know, every year for that anniversary episode and kind of catching up. A bit of a theme theme this time around is you know kind of talking about podcasting and, and how people approach it because of the three of the four uh, segments are with other podcasters so the first one is as i said dan gabosden of the amazing Sp- spider talk podcast who's the first one i actually recorded um second segment is with uh, paul scores who's my brother-in-law who used to be in a lot of episodes uh we actually realized as we were about to record it that it had been a hundred episodes since he'd uh, appeared on the show uh, again kind of marking the evolution and change of the show itself um we talk mostly about x-men comics and where the x-men comics have been uh it was interesting that we realized that the day after we recorded for episode 700 was the launch of the house of x experiment by jonathan hickman so it's kind of crazy that you know everything that's happened to the x-men was still just a year ago um so we talked about that at the very end we talked a little bit about cancel culture not a lot and i would like to have a a longer episode about it later um kind of talking about you know when people you know, get exposed for doing certain things or, you know, kind of, um, we start to evaluate creators and artists in different light. A lot of this obviously coming about because this year, some of the allegations at Warren Ellis among others and how this might interact and change the way we as consumers really appreciate the art. And obviously this has been going on for years in other mediums, but now it feels like comics are getting more of a reckoning in that area, which is good. I'm glad that that type of stuff is happening, but what happens when, you know, this work that creators you love, um, uh, you know, what if 
if they're tainted, how does that taint the work and how does it taint your relationship to it? So we don't get into it a lot. We kind of dabble in it a little bit, but I would like to examine that in more detail in a future episode. Uh, we've got Eric Anthony comes back from the Cave of Solitude podcast where we talk about, uh, we spent actually a fair bit of time kind of talking about, you know, uh, dream guests on a, on, a po- on our podcast respectively. Um, not just dream guests, but also kind of looking at uh, particular characters. Um, who would be most want to talk to about those characters? So that was a fun little experiment. And then, uh, uh, last but not least, I'm actually welcoming to the show for the first time Curtis Finley. Uh, he is the host of the Epic Marvel podcast, which I actually uh, do make appearances on as the Daredevil co-host as well as the uh, Silver, sorry, the Modern Age Spider-Man host. I do not do the Silver Age, but uh, yeah, I've been guaranteed that I'll at least be able to be there for the death of Gwen Stacy. Um, so I, I've been on his show numerous times as, as a co-host for those segments, and this is somehow the first time he's actually been on my show. Uh, but it was actually really fun for me because um, you know I've known Curtis for a while. You know, I, I've been working with him as a co-host, and you know, obviously, we you know we talk back and forth about stuff. But there's a lot of stuff I didn't know about how he got into podcasting. Uh, you know, what he does, you know, kind of as his day job, and how that all came about. So I found that really fascinating. So I hope you'll uh, find that interesting as well. If you're coming here from the Epic Marvel. Um, uh, Facebook group, then I think you'll find out a little bit more about Curtis, and it's nice to kind of pull behind the curtain. I really want to have him back to talk more about you know his past um, and also just you know other things about podcasting as well. We had a relatively short segment. We were had just recorded an episode of his podcast uh, talking about uh, Daredevil, one of the epic collections, collected the first one that's been published thus far that collects part of Anne Nascenti's run. It's like I guess the the second of the. Of uh, the four trade paperbacks that will end up, you know, covering parts of the run, um, and then after that, I was like, oh, you know, do we have a few minutes? Let's, you know, just uh, let's record something for my 800th episode. So it was a lot of fun having Curtis on, and just nice to have a new voice as well uh, for the show. So, anyways, that is uh, what this episode is about, and how I chose to celebrate this eighth anniversary. I have joked many times in the last few months, as I got closer and closer, that um, once I made the decision to keep going, that I feel like I'm kind of locked in for two more years because I feel like it can't stop. At 900, when you're a hundred away from a thousand episodes, so I feel like maybe if I ever choose to stop the podcast, uh, I think the more the, uh, the the bigger existential question will come with episode a thousand. In my mind, I'm kind of thinking maybe that would be a good place to stop, but that's still two years away, uh, which is crazy to think about. Um, you know, and it's been a fun ride. And again, I've talked to so many great creators, and that's what really has made it more fulfilling to me uh, as a personal endeavor. Um, I will say, as, you know, kind of a plug for future episodes, uh, episode 802 and 804, um, I'm not sure which one I'm going to air first, but one of them is going to be another appearance by Roger Stern, which I was super happy about. And the other is uh, Ian Churchill, um, who uh, is a great artist, and I'm really excited to have him on the show. We had a great conversation, and I'm really excited to share that with everyone as well. Uh, so those will be our 802. 2804. We're going to have Ron Garney back soon. Um, so, you know, there's still creators out there. And what's exciting to me now is actually bringing people back for a second time. Uh, because the first time, you know, I like to do these, these massive career-spanning retrospectives. And then the second time, we get to kind of really either dig in and do you know um, a retrospective on a very particular work or as a case of someone like Jim Zub it had been four years since we chatted and so much had happened in the four years that it really gave us a lot of things to kind of dig into and in fact with Jim I probably could talk for like another hour there was so much stuff we didn't talk about um, but he had just been so prolific in the last few years that um, it was just it was really exciting to kind of catch up so that's 
I think going to be a fun next stage of the podcast as well is kind of looking back at who's been on the show before and uh, bring them back for a second go around either because there's stuff we didn't get to or we want to talk about more current stuff as well so that'll be fun because um, you know the interview episodes really didn't start till right after issue 250 sorry episode 250 of the podcast so there was you know two and a half years where I wasn't interviewing anyone I had interviewed Nick Patara that was the one um, but ever since then it's really kind of kicked up and I've done a lot of these interviews so it'd be fun to kind of uh, double back with some of them um, I think I mentioned on the, the podcast um, the episode segment with uh, Curtis might have been him or might have been actually the one with Eric I can't remember I recorded them relatively close to each other but um I recently was trying to get in touch with Chris Claremont again. I haven't heard back from him yet, but uh, you know, the first time, obviously, we talked about more common stuff, X-Men, etc. Nightcrawler at the time was a current book he'd been working on. That's how long I've been doing the podcast, apparently. Uh, that was a current book. Um, but like, I've been reading his Fantastic Four again from The Hero's Return, and i kind of like, well, I'd really love to dig into that with him because I feel like that's something he doesn't usually get asked about anymore. Like, you know, people go to the hits, you know, they go to New Mutants and X-Men and all this other stuff, but you know, or even Miss Marvel in the case of uh, Curtis, you know, because he was talking about uh, Miss Marvel in her, in her epic collections, but who talks about his Fantastic for who really gets to go into the weeds with him on that so that's one thing i'd really love to do um i know in the next few months i'm hoping to have mark wade back on to talk more in depth about his kzar run he's just really busy obviously running being the publisher of uh, humanoids right now but i'm really excited to hopefully have him back on so a lot of good things to look forward to uh, i do apologize i i've just spent 10 minutes talking about where i want the show to go and where the show has been but you know it's a retrospective it's an anniversary show i feel like that's allowed but uh without further ado let's jump into our first segment with dan gavazdan and again the first one's with Dan Gavazdan, then we got Paul Scores, then we got Eric Anthony of the uh, Cave of Solitude podcast, and then we, uh, to close it all out, we have Curtis Finley of the Epic Marvel podcast. I'm really excited to present this 8th anniversary, 800th episode spectacular. Um, not quite as long as some of the other Centennial episodes, but definitely one I really enjoyed recording and putting together. So thanks so much for joining us, and let's jump right into our first segment with Dan Gavazdan of the Amazing Spider Talk podcast. Enjoy. Dan, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you? I'm doing all right, Adam. I'm thrilled to be here. I, I, these things come faster every year. I, I'm really happy to be back on. It's crazy that it's the uh, sixth centennial that you've done with me. We started with episode 300, and we just kept going, and now we're up to 800 already. It's crazy. Look at that. Time flies. It really does, and every year I have an existential question for myself if I'm going to continue going or not, and uh, I joked, I think it was to you that I joked this offline, that um, once uh, Roger Stern said he'd come back, that I was like, well, I have to go past 800 now because i got to have him on, um, but yeah. like, and I think once I get to 900, I can't stop at 900, i got to go to 1,000. I, I, I'm putting a safe bet on you clearing 1,000, Adam. I, I don't think anyone is in question about that. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, I think I think it is like baked into your blood at this point. There's there's no escaping it. I think so. I feel like if I went to thousand, and then if I ended it, I'd feel like you know it was an accomplishment. It was ten years, and then I'd be like, what do I do now? Like that's you know a lot of your time get you know thinking about future episodes, what you're going to do, trying to get in touch with people, making these things happen, and then if you suddenly didn't have to do that anymore, what would you do? Like what would you do if Amazing Spider Talk stopped tomorrow? Oh my God. I- Probably like sleep. <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I do think every now and again about like, is this show coming to an end? Am I still as excited about it as I was when I started it? Mm. And 
I think the answer is always, well, time to change the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like there's no stopping me from podcasting, but uh, I will always change the format to keep, make it as exciting for me as possible. I, I don't know. I don't know what my life looks like without my podcast just because it's kind of how I interface with a lot of the world now. You know, like the, the race riots were going on here in America. Well, of course, I got to do an episode about that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think uh, that's just kind of how I – I mean I don't filter everything through Spider-Man, but it's an interesting angle to explore on any given topic. And I think for me that's probably where the show is headed next is – like I mean, I'm enjoying the, the seasonal stuff. Mm-hmm. But I, I think I uh, for me what's exciting is – how Spider-Man interacts with our day-to-day world. And when the world is in crisis, as it is, it seems fairly easy to kind of tie it in in some way. For sure. Yeah, you bring up a good point about the kind of being able to refresh your show or retool it to kind of keep your your juices flowing. And obviously when you switched to the seasonal format, it felt like you guys definitely got more, you know, supercharged because now you had like specific thematic themes to kind of go forward with and being able to give yourself an even better structure to kind of tackle Spider-Man and his expansive history. Yeah, sure. But you're going to you're going to make it to a, a, a thousand the same way that I know they're going to milk us for two amazing Spider-Man 900 issues. It's going to happen. It's going they're going to get us for 100 for volume 5 and they're going to get us for 900. It's yeah. going to happen. Just set your set your watches. I mean, they're doing it now, aren't they with 49 and 50? <laughs> I believe so, but then they also have like this like fifty dot like LG Ugh. or something like that. I mean, yeah. they're, they're going it, like fifty is five ninety nine, but you don't get the full story. You have to also buy the X, Y, and Z. Um, uh, anyway, my head is uh, <laughs> my head is shaking. I mean, it's just uh, it's well. I, I don't usually like to talk about too much topical like. Well, I mean, we don't talk about topical stuff, but uh, specifically a Spider-Man thing that just came out, um, I guess the, whatever the Sins prelude is that we got, um, do, I, I don't usually ask you to talk about, you know, current issues. Have you read it yet? I have not read it yet because okay. I've had a bit of a crazy week. My wife and I went on vacation and then yesterday I had a lot of doctor's appointments and stuff, which I won't get into. So today is my day. As soon as I'm done talking to you, Adam, okay. going to the comic store, I'm getting my free comic book day issue. I'm getting my sins, whatever it is or whatever it is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, diving into that. Um, I, I, I remain eternally curious with what Nick Spencer is doing. Well, I don't necessarily love it. Um, I think I'm, I'm just anticipating issue 50 because it's like maybe we'll finally get past all of this, what seems like a prelude, of 50, which is the longest prelude ever, mm. uh, to get to issue 50. So um, I'm ready for Spider-Man to kick back off again. Yeah, for sure. I'm very curious to get your thoughts on it because I was of two minds of, of reading this issue all about the Senator. Um, because I love the original Senator stories, and it reminded me of something I had forgotten, which kind of made me feel very differently about the issue, and maybe not in the intended way. That's as much as I can say. I'm not. I don't want to spoil anything for you. Okay. Yeah. Well, we'll be reviewing it on Sunday night, so you can tune in live and, and join us. Awesome. So, uh, I know you're a Patreon member, so uh, th- that is for you to enjoy. Awesome. So, in the past year since we've last chatted, what what would you say? for you and the podcast has been some of your favorite moments that have happened. Oh, that's
that's really hard. Um, I mean, I think this has been a really good year for the show. We've had a lot of really cool guests on. Um, you know, recently we had Carla Pacheco on, and I thought she was really uh, like a fun guest um, to have on. I thought our race in Spider-Man episode that I talked about earlier was one of the best episodes of our show, uh, period. I just mm. thought it was such a great conversation about the topic. And, like, our, our guests, Brian and Donovan, were so well-spoken. Uh, you know, to, to me, that was a real highlight. Um, I've really enjoyed talking about the Denny O'Neill and Marv Wolfman runs. Uh, you know, rest in peace, Denny O'Neill. But, like, Mark and I have a special place in our heart for his kind of <laughs> not-great run of Spider-Man. And I felt like that was really kind of fun to get into, even if we did kind of take the shit out of Dan, Denny O'Neill's run. <laughs> Um, we I, we did an ep- I did an episode on um, the coronavirus where I talked to comic shop owners about their reactions to kind of like the diamond thing, and I thought that was kind of like pertinent and you know um, something kind of uh, fresh. And I think my I think my favorite episode of the show that we've done, maybe one of my favorite seasonal episodes of the show that we did in the past year think at least in the past year was our toy episode oh yeah i edited like a bunch of commercials and music and stuff into that one and i thought it came together really well nobody listened to it it's one of our least (laughs) downloaded episodes but um, i thought the production on that one was really fun and god it seems like forever ago we also did an episode that was like a christmas carol rewrite oh yeah um and to me, I thought that was hilarious to do kind of like a like a um, live storytelling with Mark, my co-host, where we kind of turned our show into like a Dickensian nightmare. Uh, so I don't know. It's been a really it's a long list. That's like every episode we've done. Um, well, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's so fascinating hearing you talk about it, though, because it's interesting how the ones that immediately spring to your mind are the ones where you kind of got to get out of. The, the typical what you'd expect from you guys to do and kind of do something a little bit different or a little bit more topical or kind of, you know, jumping outside of the box of just talking kind of squarely Spider-Man and looking at different ways that that kind of goes into different directions. And it's curious that, you know, is that where the show ultimately will go for you guys when you're kind of done with the kind of seasonal format going through the eras of the sh- of Spider-Man as a character, kind of doing more of that kind of off offbeat stuff? Well, it's funny you say that because I often look at what the stuff we're producing and I'm thinking, are we ever actually talking about Spider-Man on the show? <laughs> um, I mean, it's ostensibly a Spider-Man show, but like, I feel like, you know, whether we're doing episode on all, all of his villains or the toys about him, I mean, it's ostensibly about him, you know, but like Mark and I don't do the typical thing of like, man, let's talk about how much we love Spider-Man, you know, and <laughs> like, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, like we're often like we're talking we had Tom Brevoort on our show this year which I thought was really great but like we mostly talked about the kind of like behind the scenes at Marvel although we did get into his manifesto and mm-hmm. um, I would like to have a, a, an episode where I I'm looking forward to when we get to Brand New Day and I can rebuff my feelings about his feelings about uh, Spider-Man's youth mm. and things like that um, but it's funny because I do feel like you know we're not talking about Spider-Man as much as I as I feel like we should, but maybe I'm just 
being weird because we do talk a lot about the comics, but it's a lot of behind the scenes stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, one thing I've always appreciated about your guys' approach is that you know you could have just done issue by issues, but you guys have found a, a way of dissecting and taking apart you know segments of a run and not and doing it in a more interesting way or at least a, a more holistic way and you're not just looking at well you know this happened in amazing spider-man 205 you're talking about well this is the themes of the run this is the theme of this period this is when the character went through transition this is when it went through this and so from a listener's perspective i think you you engage more because you're not just doing the easiest most typical thing you're finding more interesting ways to get into the topics yeah, I mean, I do get emails from people all the time that are like, I thought you guys were going to be going through the history of the character and talking about all the great stories. Hmm. Like, what happened to you talking about stories? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I get that. Like, I mean, we'll do an episode on, like, the Lifeline Tablet Saga, and I guess we could choose an issue or two from Marv Wolfman's run or whatever to talk about that we think is really great. And I'm sure as we get into the era of, like, Roger Stern and beyond, where the book becomes more, like, individual story-oriented, um, that we'll do that again. I mean, there's no way we're not doing an episode on Craven's Last Hunt and things like that. Um I'm just much more interested in, like, Spider-Man holistically than I am, like, going so incredibly piecemeal and in-depth on individual issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think that that's been done to death. There's, like, five other podcasts out there that are going issue by issue. Yeah. And that's to their credit. Like, I'm sure they're very enjoyable. But, um, you know, I, we would be at that for till the end of time. And granted, we do do that with our reviews. So, like... From issue 709, if you want to call it 709, onward. Or no, we started with 707. Hmm. Uh, onward, we've done reviews of every single issue of Spider-Man. So I think we're approaching, what, like over nearing 200 wow. issues that we've reviewed individually. You know, Plus when we used to do related stories at the back end of episodes, so we've probably done... I don't know. I need to catalog it, like maybe 300 issues of Spider-Man that we've reviewed individually. So well, we kind of get get there, mm-hmm. you know, in some way. But anyway, you also did I don't do know your talking about. You it. also did do your essentials kind of run too, right? Like where you had your essential yeah. reads. So if people really want that, you know, you have given them that in some way. Right. There's 24 episodes of that, so uh, you know you can dive into that too. I'd love to revisit that idea again because I do think as I read more comics. I find more books that I'd love to champion. Mm. Um, I think, you know, Mark and I have a real kind of fondness for looking back. So, um, you know, I wonder if when we finish the seasonal stuff, you know, in some far off distant future, uh, that we'll get to do going back to just kind of having fun digging through our collection and pulling something out and talking about it. Um, Cause I mean, once you've talked about all of Spider-Man, what's left to do? You know, no, uh, for sure. Uh, but you know, I guess we're only finishing up season four, and we're only into like the early '80s, so we got plenty of time left to go. Uh, we got like what? Like, we've only done like a third of his history, and I think we're probably going to get more incremental as we go on because, like, we could do a whole season on just Roger Stern's Amazing Spider-Man, not to mention all of the things that were going on coinciding with that mm-hmm. um, like I just don't know how we shrink that down like Mark and I I'm sure have like four episodes on the Hobgoblin in us 
So um, I feel like you guys could have an entire show on the Hobgoblin, given Mark's love of the, of the Hobgoblin. It's true. It's true. So we're very much hoping that off of your success with Roger Stern, of which we are incredibly jealous, uh, <laughs> I, I will be flat out honest with you. Uh, you know, we're hoping that we can get him on and, and get because we've had everybody else that was involved with the story on the show. You know, even Christopher Priest. Yeah. You know, uh, so. I'm hoping that we can assemble that. And then I want to get, like, really violent. I want to get, like, a show where Ron Friends responds to our Christopher Priest interview. You know? Like, I, <laughs> I, like I really want to pit the, uh, the people against each other and relive this, like, horrible gaping wound. Um, yeah, I don't know how we're going to handle all that. I'm sure it'll be fun, though. Absolutely. Uh, uh, theoretical. I mean, if you ever were to do a non-Spider-Man podcast that was still a comic book podcast, what would you focus on? I mean, you wouldn't would, because you like to sleep, but... <laughs> I mean, uh, you joke, but I already have the plans drafted for that. Oh, really? Uh, <laughs> uh, it's just a matter of time, and I don't have it right now. But, um, you know, I, I would love to kind of expand my horizons a little bit. Now, I don't have the kind of, like, encyclopedic knowledge that you have, Adam. Like, the reason I chose Spider-Man is because that's the thing I know, you mm. know? And even then, I'm, like, not Mark level of knowledge, you know? Like, I, I think on the show, you know, I might, maybe I do a good job of covering up my kind of uh, – that I don't know everything off the, you know, the top of my – mind or tip of my tongue or whatever the phrase is um, uh, by doing copious notes uh, whereas Mark just kind of rolls into the show and is ready to go um, uh, but I what was I going to say yeah I I, uh, I would like to do a more broad comic show like what you're doing I think your show is a little more historical than I would want to go I kind of want to talk about new books that are on the market mm. like today uh, and I even have a name for the show, but I'm going to hold off. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, I think it's something that could happen in the future, I, I, depending on where my career goes. Right now, I'm finishing up. I just finished up a pitch for a comic that I've been writing for three years. Oh wow! And we're going to start shopping it around town, and uh, I feel very good about it. Um, so, like, you know, my career could take. I mean, who knows? I don't want to project that I'm going to have a career in comics, but. Um, I, it's something that I've been trying to get in, towards and I feel very bullish about. So, like, you know, I don't think I would be very keen on starting a new podcast if I was also kind of doing writing and things like that. And, you know, Spider Talk could be influenced by that. Like, it is weird to be commenting on your peers' work mm. if you're writing comics. But, again, I don't want to get ahead of myself. So, um, right now, I'm just kind of shop, going to start shopping a book around and. I'm taking everything one one step at a time. Um, mm -hmm. You could be like the new so. Jim Jim Zub, you know, an educator by day and then a comic writer by night, and then you know somehow managing the two. Well, that would be amazing. I don't know that I have the energy that Jim Zub has. I think even his name has more energy than my name. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, that would be great. I mean, uh, right now it's taken me three years to produce like this first thing that I feel very strongly about, but. I also think maybe I bit off more than I could chew by doing a kind of like like new world sci-fi kind of thing. It's just like very high concept. Um, so, um, you know, maybe there's something a little simpler that I could bite into next time. But, um, 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, anything's a possibility. If I wanted to do another comic book show, I would do it, like, kind of more broadly about new books and what's exciting me. Of course. Um, but that also means reading a lot more and being a lot more, on, like, on the pulse. Like, I, I, I really like the kind of what John Centris does on Word Balloon. I, 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 I mean, I, the topics don't really grab me half the time. Um, and it's a little more casual than I would be. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, like, I think there's room for kind of like more of that, um, kind of thing. And you do a lot of that. So, um, so yeah, right now I'm, I, Sp- the Spider Talk is such a, uh, a huge project. I mean, I think our episodes are sometimes too comprehensive. <laughs> like, uh, our episode on the animated series was like, we're talking about the. I, I watched every episode of uh, Amazing Friends and Spider Man, and that was just like a serious amount of binging. Mm. Um, or it's like, hey, we're talking about Spider Woman this week. I'm going to read every comic featuring Spider Woman. <laughs> you know, uh, and that's my own fault for kind of setting it up like that. But um, I mean, that's natural. You know. I mean, like when I'm prepping for a lot of the interviews, like I, you know, do a super deep dive just to remind myself of certain creators. I mean, even someone like a Roger Stern or a Ron Friends, like I've read a lot of their work, but I do another deep dive and okay, where exactly are we going to be talking about? So I can really dig in and like for someone like Ron, like I would try to pick out like specific panels because he has an encyclopedic knowledge of his own work. So he'd be like, oh yeah, that, that there was one, I can't remember what it was now. There was a, a clone conspiracy panel that I mentioned he's like no one's ever mentioned that thank you that was my direction and I'm like oh cool but like I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't done the extra reading and the research to really make sure I was ready Um, so it's a lot of work when you do those interviews but I mean they can really pay off especially if you can dig into some weird little detail that no one's ever you know kind of mentioned to someone and then they go oh wow you really know my stuff well that's what I like about the looseness of your show Adam is that you kind of like can do that kind of thing you Mm -hmm. know I feel like spider talk there is a like desire, at least by me, to be comprehensive, mm-hmm. and so like getting into the details about one panel yeah. is not so- something that I feel like our show is capable of doing. I mean, of course it is. I could ask it, you know, but I feel like uh, oftentimes, you know, we're like, this is our episode with Ron Friends, so like, what do you ask him? You know, oh for uh, sure. But, uh, oh, well, that's not the case. We've had, like, four episodes. I was going to say, like, friends. and I don't think I asked that of Ron until maybe episode six or seven that we've done together. Like, you know, yeah. I had I had someone email me once. He's like, do you live in Ron Friends' house yet? Like, it just sounded like he was going to adopt me. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, actually, like, I, we're doing a what-if episode this weekend. And I thought, oh, I should bring Ron Friends on because, I mean, he his first work on Spider-Man was a what-if issue. And then... He did, like, you know, the most famous what if uh, of all, I guess, which is, like, you know, uh, Spider Girl. Um, and I was like, Mark, what do you think about bringing Ron Friends in for a short bit to talk about his issue? And he's like, there's there's no way. Ron Friends does not do a 15-minute bit. He does a two-hour bit. Like, well, that's true. <laughs> you know, like, like we're not going to get him on the phone to talk about this. And it'll dominate the episode. So, like, Ron Friends got the cut, you know? Because uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do a Ron Friends season in a couple of seasons. So, like, we're not going to be at a shortage of Ron Friends, that's for sure. You do bring up a good point, because I spent six hours talking about A-Next with him. Like, that was 12 issues, and we we went super detailed. We had Tom the Falco on for the back half. And, yeah, like, yeah, Ron, Ron is a great storyteller, not just on the page, but also spoken word. 
Sure. Uh, look, I don't, and I don't want to shortchange it, you know, but I I know if I bring him on an episode, that episode is not about that anymore. It's about Ron Friends. <laughs> so what, in the upcoming seasons, like, as you put them together, like how far in advance do you plan these, you know, these seasons in terms of how you're going to approach it? Or do you kind of just take it one season at a time and then really expand from there? It's one season at a time. I think Mark and I have discussed a couple seasons ahead of time, which is like more more to do with like what amount of content do you cover in a season? You know, it's like you know we we had talked about doing like a twelve episode season around like Wolfman and um, O'Neill, and it, and then ultimately we were like, you know, there's just not enough to really get in there. We would just be kind of stalling, you know. And I had to kind of fight because Mark wanted to combine them with Stern. He was like, well, why don't we do two episodes of them and then spend time with Stern? And I was like, well, I think there's a lot of other stuff we could be talking about, like the show, you know, Spider-Woman, yada, yada. So I had to kind of make a case to build out that season and give Stern his own season. Because, like, Mark was like, we could do, like, two or three episodes on Stern. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, (laughs) we got to do a whole season just on Stern, you know? Uh uh, it'll, that'll probably be a, one of our most kind of um, issue by issue seasons because I mean he redefined how the char- character was written. You know, there's I don't think there's any way to get past that. So, um, it, you know, I think it's more like we do a master document where we go, okay, we have twelve episodes. What would the twelve topics be? And that can be really scary because you know there's things that you don't want to miss, but maybe they don't fit into a full episode. You know. Um, I know there's a number of things like people are very upset that we didn't really talk about Len Wein Hmm. as a creator in his own episode. And I regret that kind of, um, but I don't really have a lot to say about Len Wein's run on Amazing Spider-Man. Um, it doesn't stand out in the way that like a Denny O'Neill run does, you know, um, and, you do. and so I felt like we, we kind of covered it a bit when we talked about it, but maybe we leaned a little too heavy in using the name Conway versus <laughs> Wayne. I mean, you do bring up a good point, though. I mean, with your show being as focused as it is on Spider-Man, that when you have creators come in who are well-known for other things and being like legends, again, for other work, like Danny O'Neill, not the best Spider-Man writer, but has a legendary career as an editor and as a writer in his own right, just in other properties. But because you guys have the focus on a specific character, it's harder because, especially with Len Wein, didn't have you know the same kind of connection with Spider-Man. But if you look at his other work, obviously a titan of the industry. So it's an interesting kind of uh, needle you have to thread there because you're you know focused on the Spider-Man work and not necessarily the work of that person. And that's a different show. Yeah, I, I think um, we aren't really going to have much of that problem moving forward. I mean, like what, now that we've, we're about to get to Stern, I think the runs kind of solidify a little bit more in Spider-Man. There's not really anybody that comes on for ten to twenty issues mm. again. You know, like everybody kind of hangs around for a little while. Um, you know, maybe the brand new day era. We're not going to do like a whole episode on like. Mark Wade Spider-Man and you know like there's like what there's like a half dozen issues you know like I, I, you know there's only so much you can talk about um, in each creator but um, yeah I mean I, I'm, I'm, I'm eager to kind of work through it all I think the 90s are going to be insane I don't know how we break down the clone saga um, to fit into our 12 episode thing you know and, and I don't know how 
we then balance that with like the animated series and the video games mm. and the you know like eventually our kind because we're doing this kind of meta you know like this all you know aspects of the character all, all different mediums and as more mediums get introduced it's like you know how do you can, do you do a full episode just on shattered dimensions do you do, you know do you do uh, a full you know multiple episodes on the animated series I mean I already have done two on it yeah. so I feel like one is probably fine but um, I mean no matter what we do people will want more content about individualized elements of the character that they connected with like do you do a whole episode on the early 90s Fleer Ultra cards uh, you know like I mean uh, now that you mentioned uh, it yes <laughs> Yeah, right. I want to do a whole episode on on the Mark Bagley Spider-Man trading card set. That was a great card set, you know. Oh, yeah. uh, uh, so, you know, it's 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 tricky. Um, I hope that people feel like we're striking a good balance, but um, you know, people seem happy so far. I mean, we mm-hmm. got a lot of five star reviews on, on <laughs> iTunes. If that if that means anything. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, our, our fans have been very supportive, and um, it remains fun, if not a lot of work. So, uh, yeah. Do you Spot find talk is here? I mean, obviously, you have you know a very kind of set kind of pattern of what you want your seasons to be. When Spider-Man is exploding and having so many more books and so many more, as you said, like multimedia uh, expressions of the character, do you find that? Do you think you will stay just to kind of the twelve episode kind of model, or do you think you would expand it because it just demands it in terms of being comprehensive as you like to be? I think we can move beyond twelve episodes if we found a good reason for it. My thing is, I think season three of our show lasted for like over a year, mm. and that was just not my intent. But it just kind of there were a lot of things happening in the world of Spider Man that like I wanted to be a part of, you know. Um, I felt like that year there was like so many new books and so many the video game and and all that stuff and opportunities that I had like going to E3 and covering that and there was just a lot going on and so I think that season ballooned in Mm. a way that I didn't want it to and and so now our focus is keeping them tighter you know like uh, although at the same time it's now July and we still have two episodes left of season four which is a short uh, season, so I don't know how good we've been at keeping it every two weeks we do an episode. Um, It's been definitely tighter than season three. Um, But, uh, yeah, I I think we could expand beyond it, but it might just mean, like, doing another season. Mm -hmm. I think what we do is just, you know, because it's a lot of research for our show. Of course. So, like, the the 12 episodes, it's only really to like give us a couple months in between the seasonal stuff to like really dive into reading and researching for the show um, which I still feel like we are getting a, a, a you know a better grasp on as time goes on but um, haven't really perfected our methods yet um, you know some of the episodes I kick myself like I think our like Marv Wolfman episode was like a really long episode because I I took way too many notes and got way too granular. And, um, you know, I I like the episodes when they're more of a conversation than they are us recapping history. Mm. And 
So like that's a balance I'm always trying to strike a little bit, which is like we have to give people information and context, but Mark and I also want to be able to like be joking and fun with each other um, in the way that we are on our review episodes. So um, you know, it's it's a it's a learning process, but yeah, I think I think we could go beyond twelve, but twelve is a lot. Twelve is a lot of episodes. Um, I think if we went beyond 12, it's because we cast too wide a net hmm. on the topic for the season, um, which is why I kind of am like Roger Stern deserves his own season, and I don't think I'd want to fit in like the launch of all these other B titles and stuff like that, you know, that coincided with his time on the book, and shove that in there. Like I just think that like there's so much going on within the pages of just his writing, mm-hmm. um, so. I'll ask a question about some of the interviews that you've done as kind of your, your uh, amazing spider talking friends kind of episodes. Is there has there been someone that you've had on the show to talk obviously usually about Spider Man things um, where there's something you wish you'd asked or something about another character that they've worked on that you're just like oh man I really wish I'd been able to to dig into that as opposed to just kind of keeping it the focus a little bit more square on Spider Man. I mean it was weird to have Mark wait on just to talk about Spider Man's parents. And, you know, like, uh, but at the same time, I really liked that about it. It was like a short interview and it was to the point and we got like him on a topic that nobody probably talks to him about. Hmm. Um, I mean, of course. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, I'm sure I could come up with somebody, you know, that we've had on the show. Like we've had Jerry Conway on and we only talked to him about Spider-Man, but he's done so many things in his career and, um, yeah, I mean, the answer is yes, but also really no, (laughs) because um, I care about Spider-Man more than anybody else. True. So it's like, it doesn't, I'm not really that, uh, uh, like, I'd love to have Donny Cates on the show and talk to him about God Country, but like, if I'm having Donny Cates on the show, I'm not feeling bad about talking to him about Venom. True. You know? Uh, So, yeah, I don't know. Um. I mean, it felt weird to have Roy Thomas on the show and only talk about his couple issues of Spider-Man, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, given that he, he's behind so many things we love about the Marvel Universe. But at the same time, like, I'm, if I'm being honest, I really care about Roy Thomas' Spider-Man issues more than I care about anything else. That's why I'm a perfect fit for hosting a Spider-Man show, because screw <laughs> all that other stuff. I care about Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I have to actually say, I, I really did like you guys having Mark Wade on to talk about that, partially because he's just a great guest in general. He always has an interesting perspective. And to have him talk about something so divorced from just talking about his own work was a nice, different slant to take. Because usually you have these creators on, they're talking about their own stuff. So having him give commentary on someone else was very interesting. We'd like to do more of that. Um, it's just It's just hard because... Sometimes you feel like you're giving homework to a professional mm. that's busy, you know, like having Carla on to talk about Spider-Woman, you know, we were like, we want to talk about the whole history of the character. And she's like, I don't really like have the time to go back and reread the first 50 issues of volume one of Spider-Woman. And it's like, fine. Yeah, you're right. Like that stuff really doesn't matter anymore to the history of the character. Like Bendis reinvented all that stuff anyway. And we've been kind of moving forward from there. So we were like, that's fine. You can just come on in the second half of the show and talk about, you know, the stuff that inspired your run um, of Spider-Woman. So, um, you know, we try to kind of like 
feel out whether people actually uh, feel comfortable talking about the topic. And um, yeah, so mm-hmm. uh, yeah. On a, on a Mark Wade perspective, when I first reached out to him, I was trying to pique his interest, so I deliberately went to something as obscure as possible, which was his ruse run for cross-gen in the early 2000s, and was able to convince him to come on. And I, I was trying to kind of pique his interest with other stuff, so when I would have him come on the second time, you know, we still didn't talk about Marvel or DC, had him come on and talk about, you know, Archie 1955 and Archie 1941, and finally the third time, like, okay, now we're talking about some Marvel stuff, now we're talking about the official history of the Marvel Universe, which was cool. Um, I'm curious, with your show, so you mentioned having Carla on. First of all, that was a fantastic episode. She was such a great guest. But a big change with the recent format is that now you're also on video and you're doing them live. So how stressful has that been to kind of go from you guys are recording and you're able to kind of edit and make all those changes to now you're kind of going on the fly and dealing with some, you know sometimes having technical issues, um, but you know and especially bringing on guests when you're doing it live. It's been incredibly stressful. I'm not going to lie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I. I may, I think we're going to keep doing the video element, but like the live thing might change a little bit. I think we'll probably go live when it's just Mark and I, Mm. um, doing it live with a guest who's already been gracious enough to give us our time. It's, it's tricky. And I see people like John Centris and stuff doing it constantly, these live with guest thing. And I have spent countless hours building the back end and building up the tech of it. And I wonder if maybe I'm too ambitious with my tech because hmm. I'm doing like moving slides and videos and <laughs> things like that. And it, it just might, might be too much. Um, you know, th- that would be very classically me it, to try to like take it beyond. But people do this stuff all the time. And so I have to really figure out why I'm having such technical problems um, because it's all sound until you go live and things start falling apart. Hmm. And um, – Deconstructing stuff live is never fun. Um, it just I feel like I look like a, a goon, and our audience is very generous, but um, yeah, it, it just is a big headache, and I get very anxious and stressed out. So um, you know, for me, I think it's going to continue being in video format because I think it's really cool, and I think it's a level of connection with our audience that we haven't had yet before. Um, and people just like kind of seeing people talk. I, I don't know. I, I know some of our audience really built it into their their weekend. Like they look forward to the Sunday nights with mm-hmm. us. Although we've been kind of off recently. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I just think for me it's like to make things exciting. I think things were getting boring. And the live thing is like a new exciting thing to do that makes it kind of fresh. Um I like doing the post-show hangouts with our audience, too, where we answer questions mm-hmm. from them. I just think there's a lot of fun to be had there. Um, I'm still trying to work out all the kinks, which is also why it was good to have a short season uh, this season, because it was like eight episodes. We can do that live, and then we can reassess whether or not that was a good decision or not, or what's working and what's not. Mm-hmm. Who, uh, when, when you, I'm guessing it was you who came up with the idea to Mark. Was Mark very skeptical? Yes, Mark is, <laughs> is Mark is uh, is healthily skeptical about doing uh, anything new, um, which which is good. I mean, he's a good counterbalance to me because if, if it were up to me, the show would probably be very different than it is now. Like uh, I would have done a lot of different things with it, and Mark kind of is like 
He reminds me that when I asked him to be a part of the show, I had a very limited set of criteria for <laughs> being a part of the show, and uh, and and it's like okay, it's it's healthy to know that like. Because I often like can get ahead of my skis, you know. Like I, I, mm-hmm. I really want to do all kinds of things, you know. And it's healthy to have a little bit of a conservative balance to go, you know. Let's take it one step at a time. He's kind of like the dad who's like, "Oh, hold on, son. Like, let's do this, but like, you know, slow your roll a little." Well, I mean, it is important too that he is a father, and I'm not. So, like, his time is more limited than mine, just inherently. Uh, and so, like, I get into these kind of fit, you know flights of fancy that are uh, often associated with my not having children. Uh, so, <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. But um, I mean, the show continues to grow and do new things, and that's what's exciting for me. If you did end up ever doing that other show that you mentioned before, and I'm guessing maybe maybe it's not with Mark and it was with someone else, how different do you think that energy would be? Because you have. You know, developed such a uh, how how many years has it been? Six years with Mark? Seven. Seven. Oh my God! So seven years with Mark, and you guys obviously really understand each other's rhythms. You become extremely close friends. So how difficult or different would it be to be podcasting with someone else in that chair now? I don't think I would do it with someone else. I think I would just do it on my own. I think um, the struggles of doing. Like, I mean, you you know this by doing it on your own, but like the struggles of doing it with another person and potentially having a guest, mm. it's just a lot more difficult to arrange a schedule. I think the reason I would do the other show, not to like say like screw Mark, because like, I love Mark, um, it would be more just kind of be like, oh, I can do this stuff on my own rhythm mm. whenever I kind of want to and whatever kind of interests me. It would be more of a show that's kind of like a personal project than it would be like me trying to like build an, an exhaustive library of like if you start here you could understand all of Spider-Man. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it wouldn't be that. It would be more like I think what you're doing, which is chasing your passions and what interests you. Um, I think in the years that we've done the show, like I have really been interested in like interviewing I, I that's one of the skills that I feel most proud about myself is like being a natural interviewer and the new show if it were to exist would be more of an extension of that is me being like I want to have a conversation with so and so about this thing mm-hmm. you know that's definitely something I feel like I've, I need to work on uh, continuously is is to work on being a good interviewer because it's hard. It's it's not always the easiest thing to do because you know you want someone to give you stories, you want someone to open up, and that can be difficult. For sure, for sure. Um, you know, for me, it's just doing research, coming up with a list of questions, and then being open to changing them uh, on the fly. You know, I, I feel like I annoy Mark because I often <laughs> like go and just jump in and cut him off with like a question that I think is like pertinent. Like Carla, we were talking about spider woman, but she brought up like, uh, you know, COVID and, and how like, you know, their schedule with COVID. And I was like, suddenly I didn't care about spider woman anymore. I wanted to know what Marvel is telling their freelancers about how they're handling these, these books. Like mm-hmm. how far ahead of schedule is she? How does that, cause like that's something we never see is Marvel being ahead of schedule. You know, so like I, that's something I was very curious about. Um, you know, because it's going to inform my reviews of these comics too, right? If everybody's given few more months, like, and the book suddenly the quality jumps up, 
considerably. It's like, okay, well, now I know why. They really had time to sink their teeth into stuff. Mm-hmm. That's always been something I've loved about doing the interviews is finding out more of that kind of background stuff, like what was really going on or like what thought processes were happening or, you know, what editorial was telling or, as you said, like what, how creatives have been, you know, handled in this in this time. I always find that the most interesting stuff because, I mean, I can read the text of what they've put together and I can, you know, make assumptions about what they thought about certain characters, etc. But there's other stuff I'll never know unless I ask about the background and that's, that's the stuff I love. I, I mean, I love the weird back backroom shenanigans that inform all this stuff. Like when I was talking with Mark Wade and I asked him about Kazar, I brought up Kazar. First of all, he was like, don't ask about Kazar. He's like, no one likes that. Like you could see, hear it in his voice that he was like, oh no, you're going to grill me about Kazar. I'm like, no, no, I love your Kazar. And he was telling me how the only book, the book came about because he met up with Andy Kubert and Andy Kubert's like, you know, let's do something together. I really want to do Kazar. And he's like, all right, let's do it. Like that's how that book happened that Andy Kubert wanted to draw Kazar. Like that's, I would never have known that, and it's such a weird, bizarre, like, why did Andy want to drive that? Who knows? But, you know, I would never have known that story. There you go. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, for me, I try to, like, see if I can learn new things every episode. That's kind of, like, a, a goal of mine. Because, um, you know, I think a lot of our audience is probably just as big of webheads as we are. If you're listening to a Spider-Man show, you're probably a Spider-Man nerd. So, like, if, I, if I'm not learning new things, you know, I think our audience probably isn't learning new things. So, yeah, that, it's a good thing to kind of keep in mind. And, yeah, getting, getting someone on a topic they don't normally talk about is a great way to do that because, you know, I don't know how Mark Wade feels about Spider-Man's parents being mm-hmm. uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. spies, even though he wrote a book associated with that. Um, I think ultimately he decided he's okay with it. <laughs> what uh, and as we come to a close here, what would you say is uh, you know of this past season? What was the big thing that you thought you learned, or something that you gleaned that was most interesting to you that you really didn't know before? Huh. that's hard. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of it was kind of like learning about um, like the Denny O'Neill kind of as a person a little bit more was was definitely interesting. Um, you know, I, I think watching the Spider-Man 1981 cartoon, I had never seen a, a wink of that, and seeing how great that show was was really neat. Um, you know, it, it, that's hard to say. Um, you know, I, I think you know. Hmm. <laughs> just just from season four, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, Spider-Woman, like, I had never read issues 1 through 15. So that was really interesting to kind of read those old issues of Spider-Woman. Um, talking with Danny Fingeroth about the kind of behind the scenes of the the era with Jim Shooter kind of coming under the book was like, I think there's a lot of kind of like myth and legend built up around uh, a lot of these characters. And then when you talk to someone like Danny, it just feels like, He's talking about, like, dudes he used to hang out with. You know, like, it, it doesn't sound quite as, like, uh, uh, like mythologized. And I like that. It kind of breaks down. Like, I often end up walking away from interviews with Danny feeling like an idiot for asking questions that are like, so what was it like, you know, like when Frank Miller used to come into the building? And he'd be like, uh, well, you know, he'd push the door open and, you know, he'd walk in and he'd put artwork down and we'd be like, cool, man. 
you know, it, it, I, this is a really terrible Danny Fingeroth impression, <laughs> but um, th- to say like that, like they're just guys doing a job, uh, is kind of healthy. Mm-hmm. I think for my mindset about like how I approach, you know, talking about these things. Um, in many ways, it's not like I learned some little new factoid more than is learning a kind of like mindset about like comic creators just being people. Mm. Um, I think is healthy, and if I can get like fandom in general to treat comic creators like they're just people and not like uh, gods who are vengeful against you, um, <laughs> I think that's a net healthy thing. Because uh, everybody's got like strengths and weaknesses, um, and uh, I think if I can highlight that, I think it makes it all more human. It is interesting. Yeah, you bring up the idea of the kind of we've created mythology over these people. I mean, that kind of goes back to Stan Lee creating um, the myth of Stan Lee, like who he is, that persona. It kind of it gets perpetuated forwards with certain creators more than others, obviously. And then you know, the more you hear someone talk, or the more that you know someone's viewpoints, maybe that mythologizes them less, or in some cases more. Like Rob Liefeld is his own podcast now, and he's a fan of being a fan and like just loving things. And it's interesting to follow along in that kind of journey to see if he's just a dude. Yeah. I mean, that being this all being said, if Roger Stern ever comes on my show, I will like worship the ground that he walks on, you know? Uh, I mean that guy, you know, but like, I'm hoping that by the end of the interview, I like know more about how he created what he did. And it becomes less, um, a work of like divine, you know, intervention and more work of like, oh, here's a guy that like worked his way through how he wanted to tell these stories. You know, like, you know, I think you 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 read, you can go online and you can find his like script that he sent to Ron Friends for uh, the kid who collects Spider Man, mm-hmm. and it's like it's living on the page, right? Like, it just seems like this thing that life was life was just breathed into. And it's this amazing script. Like for me, what I want if I talk to Roger Stern, I want to like learn about like what that process was like. How, you know, how did he you know, hack out that story? Mm-hmm. And maybe he'll say like, "I just sat down and it came out of my pen." In which case, great, like amazing, Roger Stern. You know, <laughs> like good job, buddy. Uh, but I get, I, I, I seem to think that's probably not the case. Uh, you know, and, and that makes it more interesting to me. Um, For sure. All right, last question before I let you go. What's the last thing you, what's the last comic book you read? The last comic book that I read was, um, so I just went on vacation, so I binged a lot of things. Um, I believe the last comic that I read was um, Sentient. The, okay. the TKO Presents book from Jeff Lemire and uh, Gabriel Walta. And how was that? I liked it. Um, I mean, it's up for an Eisner and uh, for, I think, like best miniseries or best graphic novel or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's a sci-fi, like a serious hard sci-fi book, um, and which is the same genre of the book that I'm pitching. So... You know, I wanted to include Sentient in our pitch as like a comparison book, but I was like, I can't do that unless I've read Sentient. You know, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I need, I need, to, and it's Jeff Lemire. I read everything he writes, so um, 
I picked this one up. Um, I liked it. I feel like the concept could have got pushed a bit further. Like, uh, I felt like it had a really cool idea at the heart of it. Do you know anything about this book? Um, I don't. I don't. Unfortunately, no. Um, so it's about like this spaceship with like uh, this like uh, colonizing group of people that are go- traveling to like colonize another planet, and they're like attacked by these separatist fighters like on their journey, and all of the um, all of the parents of these kids are killed off, and the AI of the ship kills off the invaders. So now it's like up to the AI to become like the new mother to these children. And like fulfill its functioning as their guardian and get them to this planet. Um, so it's neat. I just felt like that was a really cool premise, and it didn't really take it to its logical conclusion. Like mm. it didn't go quite as far as I would have wanted with it. But it's still like a beautifully told Jeff Lemire book in six issues. Um, so yeah, I'd recommend it. Um, I also binged like twenty issues of Black Science. Oh, yeah. Which I think is brilliant. Um, that book is so fun. It's like the perfect premise for like new thing every issue. Like you never know where it's going. Um, so that was neat. I read Batman Arkham Asylum, um, the really weird Grant Morrison book. Have you read oh, this? It's been a long time since I've read it, but I definitely have read it. It's very strange, um, which is Grant Morrison for you. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I thought it was okay. Um I, I tend to like not respond much to like superhero books that try to elevate them beyond what they are. Mm. Um, like I get it, Batman is like a bat, and you know he's just as tormented as his villains. I, I get it. Uh, I feel like sometimes it's a little too self serious. Uh, and I've got rating on my shelf right now. I've got Firepower. The new uh, Robert Kirkman book, the the prelude and issue one that I'm very eager to dive into. I know that it's like kind of cliche to say, "Oh, that Robert Kirkman guy can write good comics," um, <laughs> but like you know, don't short sell this guy just because like he's been successful. His books are incredible. I love Oblivion Song, and I'm very eager to get into Firepower. So, um, you know. I know that's going to sound really, like, basic of me, but, like, I love Robert Kirkman. Give me his comics any day. Hey, you're allowed to love who you love. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it it sells for a reason. It's good storytelling. Absolutely. Well, Dan, thank you so much. We'll obviously have you back on for episode 900, which sounds crazy to even say because it's so far from now, but uh, it's always a pleasure having you on for our centennial chats. Hey, I love these, Adam. I'm. I feel like I just talked about me this whole time. But congratulations on 800 episodes. Uh, that's really awesome. I will. I will safely say I will never get there. And eventually, uh, I think you could. I could. I, look, look. I think when we were talking about uh, uh, your episode 700, I was like, "Yeah, we're in the 200 somewhere. Maybe I'll get to 300." I'm still not at 300. So, like, <laughs> you know. 800 is uh, is unbelievable to me. So, um, you know, maybe I've done more than I'm giving myself credit for because of all the Patreon stuff, but sure. uh, I don't think I'll ever get to 800. If I do, God help me. And God help you, Adam. Oh, I, yeah. I One thing I have noticed about myself, though, is that, like, my reviews episodes, because I, I used to read everything, and I, I just can't follow it anymore. 
partially having two children now, it's just impossible to... I'm sure Mark can understand that. You can't read everything anymore. Like, I used to do reviews episodes every week where I was talking about, like, 20 books, and then it became, like, 10, and now I'm like, eh, five. Like, the five best I read or had a chance to read, like, that has changed over time, but at the same time, like... For the last 600 episodes or maybe 550 episodes we've been doing all the creator interviews as much as possible so that's been you know for me the most enjoyable part of doing the show is i get to talk to people whose work i never thought i'd be able to talk to them about and i get to learn about the creative process and what they're thinking and how it all works and that's been really interesting i don't think i have enough of the spark of imagination to ever write comics but i love reading them and i love understanding the people who do yeah, I mean, I, I don't claim to have the spark of imagination, but I'm trying. Uh, we'll see. And, um, you know, I guess the thing I'll end with, Adam, is uh, how, do, how do you feel that you are set to outpace the issues of Amazing Spider-Man? Oh, God. Hey, I hadn't thought of that. I guess that's about to happen uh, soon. It's pretty crazy. Um, actually, what I was just thinking as you were saying that is that, you know, when if, if and when you are able to shop your book, you can come on as a creator and we'll just talk about you as a creator. Oh my god, that would be wild Well, you know what, maybe I'll send you the pitch today And you can tell me what you think of it That'd be awesome Alright, well thanks so much, Dan (laughs) Alright, see you later, Adam Congratulations As we roll along in this Comic Shenanigans cavalcade of segments in this 800th episode, this 8th anniversary extravaganza, uh, I'm joined once again. That is that is like Stanley narration right there. That is That was purple prose. Uh, I'm your host still, Adam Chapman, and I'm joined this time by Paul, Paul Scores. We are once again annually at a cottage. We're not doing a separate episode this time. Just like episode 700, we're doing one, uh, just a segment for... You know, one of the anniversary shows, and we're just gonna kind of shoot the shit, talk about some stuff. Uh, I realized, and I haven't actually let Paul talk yet, um, that the last time you were on this show was actually 100 episodes ago, which seems crazy because you and I see each other all the time, yeah, and we talk about comics all the time, but we haven't actually recorded anything on mic for a year, and so astounding. Welcome back, astounding. Oh, thank you. It's it's good to be back. Yeah, it's it's crazy because obviously when the podcast first started. Um, it felt like our lives were very different. Like I didn't have a kid yet. You just had, I guess you had two, no, I'm trying to think when, when's Kayla's birthday? It's July 2012. Yeah. So I started the podcast a month later. So it was very early. Yeah. So it was a very different time in our lives. Um, at the time Nate was on a lot of episodes cause he lived close by to me at the time. Uh, he's then moved away and it was just very different. And then the show obviously morphed into something different, but you go back and look at those first hundred episodes. There was a lot of episodes that we, the three of us did together. Sometimes with my wife, sometimes with Amber, uh, Nate's wife. And then at, as time went on, it was just harder to get that kind of stuff going. And now it's been a hundred episodes since you've been on one. Like it's crazy to me. Astonishing. You know, it's, it's funny. I was having a conversation with, uh, as you talked about kind of like almost a brief little summary of the podcast here. You were at episodes, uh, 800, which is astonishing. Um, a friend of mine, Evan, who I know from my, uh, TFCon group, uh, he's just started kind of a little YouTube channel. Oh, nice. Um, and it's called uh, The Evil Skeletoys. Okay, nice. <laughs> uh, because uh, Evan can do lots of good voices. He does a okay. Uncanny Kermit the Frog. Oh, really? Um, he, does a great, he does a great, great Skeletor. A lot of the uh, Muppets he can do pretty well. Uh, Fozzie Piggy, you know, mm. um, even Sesame Street characters, Grover, mm. Cookie, Monster, all that kind of stuff. So he... Uh, so my daughter would love him. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, so... And shun me more. <laughs> exactly. Um, sorry, Dad. This guy has cool voices. You're, you're, you're out. Right? Yeah. I just do a cookie that sounds like Batman. Like, <laughs> Yeah, you're, you're a very dark cookie monster. 
very dark and brooding. There, there is a moment in, in the book that I read to my daughter where it says that uh, the only thing Cookie likes more than cookies are his friends or something like that. And I say it, and then Kelly looks at me and she's like, it sounds like he's going to eat his friends. Because <laughs> I guess the way I performed the, the line. So yeah, it was very disturbing. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then my son does it too. He's like, it sounds like mm-hmm. he's going to eat his friends. I'm like, okay, leave me alone, guys. Right. Uh, so the genesis of this whole idea was he does a great skill tour and... Um, Obviously, when he, he uses it, and obviously, you know, more lewd and inappropriate moments, but it's just hilarious. Anything he says or does at Skeletor mm-hmm. just kills it, right? And we we had always kind of joked around back and forth about, hey, why don't you do some kind of YouTube thing mm-hmm. at Skeletor, right? Oh, yeah. So he started this thing where he does, like, people do toy reviews. It's a big thing online. Mm-hmm. So he does it on random crap. Um, but Skeletor, oh, right? Nice. So he's not being honest. Like, oh, this thing has only one point of articulation. Oh my god, this you know, yeah. ridiculous. Who would buy these things? Um, so it's it's kind of fun, and he's been kind of doing it. And obviously, it's a, a slow startup thing, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, and now we're uh, he kind of did something where um, Skeletor um, was injured. And uh, now Goofy's doing some, a few reviews, oh my and now we're building up to Skeletor coming back. And we were texting back and forth, and now we come up with this idea: we, we want to do like uh, Skeleverse, right? <laughs> so multiple versions of Skeletor toys coming back and doing this, oh, this big funny. thing. So we have a storyline going throughout it. Yeah. So, and 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 he's kind of he always texting back and forth, sometimes saying, "Oh, you know, I've done this, but I, maybe it's not worth it, right?" Because finally the COVID thing, he's home looking for something to do. Um, mm. He's got two kids at home, but you know he's kind of a Mr. Mom for a bit, anyways. So yeah. he's finally, you know, dove in, and they're short, you know, maybe five ten minute episodes, not yeah, long. Yeah. Um, and they're just free last. Like the actual review of the toy is meaningless on, on yeah, for the most yeah. part, depending on what it is. Yeah. Um, and he kind of, I kind of gave you as inspiration, saying, you know, you had this channel, this this, this podcast start mm-hmm. as you know, you were given eights to every comic known to man every week. I was and still am. And started with that, and now it's evolved to hey, now you're talking to. You know, comic creators you never thought you'd talk to down the road, and you evolve the show. And it's home. You know, this is where you start. And you know, who knows? It may take one, two, or some random video might just kick it off, That's and true. you'll gain some popularity. Or, or as long as you physically enjoy doing, yeah, the, putting putting the work into it, then do it. If if it's not worth it to you, then stop. So right? I have. I mean, every time I get to a centennial, I have an existential crisis of whether I should bother. Exactly. Um, and I had one. I think probably the biggest one this time. Because it was really hard. Because I was, I was thinking. Because more than any other, this one felt like if I keep going, well, I got to hit nine hundred. And if you hit nine hundred, you have to do a thousand. Sure. So this felt different than the rest. Because when I got to seven hundred, there wasn't like, well, I got to do three hundred more. But this time, it felt like a commitment that it has to be two hundred more. And who knows? Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. But it was really hard because. You know, it's, I mean, you know, I've just, uh, we've just adopted a little girl. Time is not exactly what it used to be. It's it, it just the emotional energy is different because my son, you know, he's annoying sometimes and lovely at the other times, but, you know, it's very different emotional energy and, uh, you know, to watch a, you know, seven-year-old than it is a one-year-old. Like, right. it's just, uh, I forgot the bandwidth. It's so different because you have to be on all the time. Whereas with my son, he could just come go off and you know watch the screen for a little bit or do whatever. Whereas with my daughter, we actually have never given her any screen time in the two months we've had her, which is we were very happy about it, but also like exhausted as a, as, a, as a result. So I had a lot of 
thoughts about, you know, if I should get, I joked, actually, I think I might, this might have been earlier in an episode, I can't remember if it was on mic or not, but I joked with Dan Gavazin of the Amazing Spider Type podcast that um, once I got Roger Stern to agree to a second interview and it was going to have to be after 800, I have to keep going just yeah, fair because enough. I got that interview to do. Um, and so, like, I can't just stop. Um, although it would be funny if I just called these people and just talked to them and there was no episode. Like, <laughs> and they'd be like, where's the episode? I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, I recorded it somewhere, but it's just for me. Like, sometimes it feels that way anyway. But, um, yeah. but that, yeah, 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 I would agree with you. I never thought I would talk to people. I, it, a lot of it was just, you know, what, what, have, what have I got to lose? You yeah. know? It's interesting. Comics is such a small medium in that you can actually have these conversations with people. Because I could never get in touch with, you know, movie stars or TV stars or those types of people and actually be like, hey, let's talk about your thing. They'd be like, well, who are you? Who are you representing? You know, what are you part of? Whereas, you know, comic creators were like, cool, yeah, let's do it. Let's have a chat. And um, that has been a... You know, and you like to talk about their weird, vague stuff. Right, I, and that yeah. is a nice hot button. Like a passion project for them. Yeah, right? I, I have gone. So it was interesting. So I, I think I've told you this. So Ron Friends has been on the show a lot now. I think six or seven times. One person joked that you know have I moved into his house yet? Has he adopted me yet? Because we get along so well and we've talked so much. I've, but uh, a book that I was loved that is not a huge seller and no, not a lot of people even know about it in the late nineties was a next part of the MC two universe Spider Girl. And so I always loved that book. So one of our conversations, he mentioned that that book meant something to him because we talked before about how much I loved it. And he mentioned that it meant a lot to him because he got to do a little bit more of the plotting that time. So he was working with, with Tom DeFalco, who was writing two of the books at the time. So he got to have more of a uh, um, you know, kind of hands in directing the bus. And this was a big deal. This is something he had never really been able to do before. Um, so, I, so I jumped on my moment. And I said, okay, let's, you know, would you come on? And would you do a creator commentary of this thing that I've loved for 20 years? And he was like, yeah, let's do it. And so I think I spent almost six hours talking about this book. And it meant the world to me when I was a kid. And I have fond memories of it. I remember going and getting one of the issues because there was this store in the town where my grandmother was living. She was like, oh, you've got to go to the store. They have comics. She knew nothing about comic books, but she knew that they had a spinner rack. And I went to that spinner rack and I had an issue of A-Next. And it might have been the first issue I actually ever bought of A-Next. Um, so it always had, has a, had a special part of my heart. So the fact that I was able to talk six hours with this about a book that no one knows about or cares about uh, fills me nothing with glee. So yeah, there's something to being able to, and I always, when I do the research, try to find something so niche, so bizarre, something that they've never really talked about um, with anyone else or that no one else has ever really done and gone on that. Uh, actually, coming back to Ron Friends, we were talking about, I know I talked about this in the last segment briefly, but um, we were talking about an issue he did for the clone conspiracy a few years ago. And that, I guess, who's writing that? Dan Slott, right? Yep. It's been so long, I don't even remember. Um, anyways, we were talking about a panel and the whole resurrection of Gwen Stacy and how that she actually knew who, who that Peter was Spider-Man before she died, which is huge, like, really changes how that character died. Anyways, um, there was a panel in there, and I can't remember exactly what it was, but I remember I mentioned it to Ron, and he was like, you're the only one who's ever noticed this, but I pushed for this. This is something that meant a lot to me as, a, as an artist. I wanted to do this, and they let and Dan Slott let me do it, and you're the only one who's ever called it out. Because I was like, I love this panel, this panel's amazing, and he's like, you're the only one who's ever caught that. And I was like, that's pretty cool. Uh-huh. You know, that was, a, that was a nice little moment between me and Ron. And I try to have that with as many people as I can interview to try and find that weird moment, that weird little thing, that, that project that no one's ever talked about. Because, you know, certain people have they've talked about all the same stuff. You know, if they've been in the industry 30 years, they've probably talked about all the same stuff. But if you can find the weird thing, 
that's the exciting part. Because like, oh, I've never gotten a chance to talk about this. So that's been the fun. So hopefully I'll get to keep doing that. Um, the one that I'm excited about, which I hope actually pans out, is uh, talking to Ian Churchill, which we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting because, you know, I think of him as being an actual... I'm having a chat offline with... Uh, I'm talking a lot, so I apologize. With Curtis Finley, who does another podcast, the Epic Marvel Podcast. And we were talking about how, in our minds, it felt like Ian Churchill was the regular artist in Cable. Then AOA happened, and Steve Scrooge was on the book. And then Steve Scrooge kept on for X-Men and left Cable, and now we had Ian Churchill. And so, but we were trying to kind of figure out, like, why didn't Ian Churchill do an Age of Apocalypse book? And I guess it looks like, when we kind of looked at the chronology, that, and I am excited to talk to him about this era, that he kind of, that was his first issue of Cable, which means Steve Scrooge must have already been working on X-Men, and maybe they, he was more of a, a known commodity at that point, so they had him already tanked for that book, and they must have talked to Steve and said, hey, do you want to just continue on with this and not go back to Cable? I'd have to go back and talk to Steve because I don't remember, I've talked to him like five years ago, but I don't remember if we got into that, and I'm curious about the chronology because that was an interesting thing too because I think of, you know, Ian Churchill being the Cable artist of the 90s for me. I mean, I know obviously he's not. He's not right. the one who created the character. He's not the one who's probably the most remembered for the character. But for me, in my very specific period of liking Cable at the time, he made the sexy Cable. And it was, <laughs> and it was exciting. It was, he made everyone look amazing. And so I've always been a fan of Churchill. Anyways, that's a one I hope is coming up in episode, I don't know, 804 or something. But something to look forward to. Absolutely. Um, anyways, so it's been a year. Oh. So we, I was looking this up, and it was crazy to me that we last time we recorded was the day before House of X, the moment that changed the X Men universe. Yes, and that's crazy because I really thought we had talked about it. I thought I, mean, <laughs> we, I really thought we talked about it on mic at some point that we had kind of talked about all the crazy shit that happened, and we didn't. And no. In fact, our world had not yet been changed the last time we spoke about it, uh, anything uh, on podcast. So a year later, all the shit that Hawks Pox did. Yeah, where are you with it? Are you enjoying it? Is it? Are you still tuning in every week? Are you tuning in every week with every book? Are you Are you excited about every book, or or are you only kind of looking at the core books? What are the core books of <laughs> Dawn of X for you? It's a it's a very loaded question. Wow, thank you for. Uh, oh yeah, I start set, set the tea pretty high there. Uh, so I'll set the timer too. <laughs> Good luck answering that question. Right. Um, well, the event in itself, the first two miniseries, if we'll call them that. The two series that are one? I sure. That's how they yeah, build it? Yeah, the, the intertwining series, sure. Why they make one, like 12 uh, books, I don't understand, but whatever. Um, I loved the concept behind the resurrection, mutant mm-hmm. power, that Moira, like this legacy character, um, I had tons of backstory, this and thing, and you were able to do something completely out of this world with her. And I love that part of it, most of all, for sure. And then kind of seeing how... Our yeah. reality is the only one that Proteus exists. Apparently. Isn't that weird? Of all those lifetimes? And she didn't know. Like, how did this McTaggart guy, like, how did she ever... What was her name in the other realities? Did they ever actually mention that? Because uh, they, they say Moira X. Somewhere. They say Moira X, right? But, like, I no. guess she has a name. I can't remember what it was. Because obviously Joe McTaggart is a different guy. Right. And how did she find that guy? I don't know. Because that seems a little stranger, given her entire, all the other lifetimes that she had before that, as like crazy assassin, like all, <laughs> all the queer shit that she went yeah. through, to have one where she just meets this random dude and happens to create the, one of the most powerful mutants ever, who they end up, don't they end up, no, I guess they don't need Proteus for anything else. 
Because Proteus isn't involved in the five. I can't remember. No, it's Hope, Gold Balls. Uh, there's not Gold Balls anywhere. It's something else now, right? Yeah. Um, the girl with the time. Yeah, the time. Uh, not time dilation. I can't remember her name. But yeah. And this is character, yeah. Yeah, okay. Who else was um, it? There was someone who was a Rowled and Manipulator. Which one was it? It's not... Not Proteus, not Legion. You sure it's not Proteus? I don't know. We got back. Who are five? Yeah, I'll probably look that up when okay, we talk. Okay, um, So, okay, so the Moira thing I was on board for. Yeah. The going through the various versions of lives were cool. Um, then the future stuff, I to this day don't understand what was happening there. Um, well, it was, a di- it was a different lifetime, but we didn't know it at the time. Right. And basically explains that it's all ine- there's an inevitability, and no matter what they do, it's not going to matter. Yeah, well, it's all it's very phalanx oriented, whatever yes. that that future is, right? Yeah. Um, well, Proteus is one of the five. He is okay. It's Proteus, Proteus Tempest, Pope. Elixir, Elixir. Yeah, I knew there was some Hope and Egg. He's Egg. Okay. That's so stupid. When did he? Cha- did, I don't even remember him officially changing his name to Egg. No, they mention it in one of the books. Gold Balls is better. <laughs> Gold balls is better than egg. Yes, <laughs> egg is stupid. Hey, egg, come here. No, I'd rather be gold balls. <laughs> that sounds better. Sounds more like a superhero. It yeah. sounds ridiculous, but yeah. I mean, it's still better than egg. <laughs> egg is something to eat. It's not a hero. Okay, no. egg. That's um, dumb. Sorry. It, it is. It totally is. So, not the not the gold balls was no, the, any better. Was the gold standard for being a hero? It's a weird bond. Apparently, according to oh, Mar- Powers, I should say. yeah, according to Marvel fandom, uh, his name was at least mentioned there in Excalibur one. So, yay! Yeah, there it is. There you go. There it is. Egg. So you weren't sure about the future stuff? No, I, I, he lost me there. Like I don't, when I went reading the stuff, I was I was able to grasp a lot of the crazy ideas and stuff he was kind of doing off the walls. But anytime the future stuff got involved and the really weird, witty Nimrod mm. kind of came in, yeah, um, you know, I like and it was very biblical. Like very, there was a religion. Right? Yeah, there was. Like, yeah, you know? like Nimrod to me should be like Stone Cold, Ultron. You know, just like, want the X Men animated series. Sure, but him being all like. Weird and, and, and flamboyant and stuff because didn't yeah I sinister I can help doing that kind of shit Nimrod it doesn't sit with I me I I'm sad that we don't have the '90s sinister anymore like I don't know how we got here with this weird <laughs> effed up sinister yeah a, but even before that like they've done so many weird things with him being like Miss Sinister for oh, a while yeah, that's a crazy shit. like I don't know but, I haven't, I haven't, that's, that's definitely a pluck from the Secret Wars era yeah to, okay so where we got that's that's where Sinister came from yeah sure. changing kind of wacky and changing more were definitely a huge thing to have happen yeah and, and crazy and doesn't like I didn't see that mm-hmm. coming I really I remember reading that being like, holy crap yeah that's amazing I feel like the only problem with that is we haven't really seen her. Since then, no, exactly. So you've not got you've, you've we've ne- seen her like once, like where? I think we see her, we saw her briefly at the end of those series because she was still alive, and there was a, a text page that indicated that you know her death back in like what two thousand two thousand one was not real and that it was faked and it was someone else. Like there, um, all I remember is I think there's a one of the graphs show that she is still alive. Yes, and in Kakoa. There's a special little hidden bubble yeah. where we believe she hides in. That's yeah. where she is. She's in this thing. There's so many... Yeah, it's right? weird, too, because, like, Moira obviously has 
Like, her and Mystique are not friends. Or will not be friends. No, there's a huge thing with Mystique. And Mystique doesn't even know, necessarily, that Moira's anything. Yeah. But, obviously, Moira cares very much about Destiny not coming back. Yes. And there not being any precogs. Yes. Are there any precogs around? I'm trying to think. Because remember there was a whole storyline back in, like, X-Men 200, when they murdered them all? Uh, they were taking them all off the off, off the, board. the board, yeah. And then you had Messiah Complex, yeah. so that was a huge thing back in the day. And and we used to have Destiny's Diaries, like all this. That shit. was a big thing, yeah. Yeah. So it's just it's fascinating that yeah, that was the whole premise for Extreme X Men. Extreme X Men was the yeah. whole premise of there. So then cool stuff yeah. with this type of stuff before. I do like <laughs> how they've been motivating Mystique, and definitely makes her more interesting. Um, yeah, but we, again, but she's just been sitting half in the Quiet Council ever since. Like, like here, here's well, no, but Mystique was doing missions, and like she's pretty pissed. Well, yeah, initially, yeah, you, and we're you seeing see that, that she's right? been told by there was a one episode of that was by her, her vantage point. And you see what she was doing back in those yeah. original series. That was a great issue. She had a whole mission, yeah. and we see that you know, she was told by Destiny, like you know, you're going to have to burn it all down. Yeah, and so yeah. which is but, so that's a layer, right? Like, here's the thing: all we've done since, and we've set this big stage. Right, giant stage, giant stage, massive, universe shattering. Because a switch flipped. Like one day, we're all wearing wacky costumes. Everyone's alive. We've discovered reincarnation. Like all this just suddenly happened in the six one six, a blink of an eye, out of nowhere. Yeah. Like the biggest status quo shift of all time. Like okay, fine, you got the Avengers living in a celestial. And, uh, Ar- 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 but Ar- at Ar- least Ar- that was part of a story. Fine, yeah, exactly. They right? didn't just wake up one day and boom, no. right? And a lot of shit doesn't. Connect doesn't make sense, mm. right? The math does not add up on a lot of the characters. They're just like Storm, here, Storm right? being kind of a zealot. Yeah, Storm was really weird. I am mutant. We are proud, and we're cheering on these naked people standing on this on this big stage. Ah, so get wasted. Like all the music guys get loaded up it's, on Krakoa, having sex, making more mutants. Yeah. It's a big party time. It's interesting. And they have in this other island float over and have sex with Krakoa and become a bigger island. So that's one issue, right? That's new white, all yeah. white character, right? Because Hickman lights all white things, right? It's like, oh, yeah. the hole's all gold. This guy's all white. Yeah. You know, very original character design. I don't know. So we got the sex island happening. That's one issue, right? When <laughs> Cyclops takes the kids out for a romping adventure out in the wild, right? Yeah. Let's go, uh, Cable and uh, Rachel Gray. Let's just go out and mm-hmm. have a good time with my kids. Like, there's a lot of out of, so out of character moments. That's my hard time. Vulcan's back? Yeah. I have so and he's time. completely different. He is, Right. So I'm having such a hard time buying into it because you got Gene and Wolverine are doing it, and they got a little side door of Cyclops there. So there's a big non-shotwall thing. Like the left maybe triangle he's still is doing real. Like, I don't know. Maybe they're making eyes, but then like you read Magneto and like Emma's doing like and like you think there's some. I don't know, man. Like it's so all over the place, right? So you got you know you got the Great Mystique issue. You got the, the double sex island. You got. <laughs> The Golden Girls. Golden Girls, yeah. The fuck are these old grandmas? And they're back in Empire's time. Times. Are they? Okay, great. Yeah. So, uh, this, but the same time we see them, like, you've introduced all this great stuff in Hawks Pox, but you've gone back to none of it. And now you're adding layer after layer after layer. He's adding you, new characters, new concepts. I know. And everyone I'm sure it'll be a big, big payoff in a thousand years. Yeah. I know it's coming. <laughs> right? It's once, once the house is built... We're gonna, you know, start all that opening one. rooms and seeing, oh, what this was for, right? Find all the toys again, right? Like I bet you any money in New Mutants, right? Mm-hmm. There was uh, after you get past Stupid Beak and Nebraska and uh, yeah. whatever, they just went to Russia. This this small town in Russia, this nightmare, mm-hmm. nightmare powers, girl nightmare powers is, is a thing, right? So they, they kind of took her in. Yeah. So I bet she's gonna be a payoff later because mm-hmm. you know, Hickman's part of New Mutants in a way, right? Does she, have a, does she have a sword? Oh, oh, I haven't gotten there yet. Where the, no. 
these uh, okay. sort of omens are going to come from, so, from big stones. You are not ten, a big ten fan rocks of, around the world. Yeah. We'll pull ten swords. So, I mean, let's let's jump to the quick. So, there's a lot of new elements that were introduced to the mythos, and I'm reading all the books. And, I read all the books, and it felt like there was no. You're right. There was no build up to it. If you're reading Uncanny X-Men the month before, there was no connection. None. Um, now that's not Hickman's fault. That's editorial. If anyone, if you're going to blame anyone for that. That feeling of disconnect is not on Hickman. Right. It is on editorial for not thinking it was important enough to proceed right. in something. It is weird. Now, Hickman's answer would be, that's a story. But he's not interested in telling that story, so it's a bit <laughs> weird uh, that we're not going to get part of the story. story. There might be some weird thing where this all... You're right. It's one day, like, Xavier wasn't even around. He was gone off the grid, no one knew he was alive. And suddenly he's back. Everyone knows he's back. He's wearing a helmet, and it seems like it's a big deal, but then it's not a big deal. Right? Because they're, they're very... If you read... Um, uh, I can't remember if it's X number one or Hawks and Pox number one. There's one director's cut version, mm-hmm. right? And it says very clearly in the notes. I think some redacted stuff, too, but it's very clearly in the notes. You know, Xavier's always wearing the helmet. All the time. Do you think maybe the reason why that is is just because he was... Phantom X, and they didn't want to confuse people who didn't know that part of the story, and then that's why they killed him. It's, it's a fair, and brought him back well, yeah. in, a, in a clone body, and ever since then we've started seeing him without the helmet. Every now and again, for sure. Which is, and, so and, maybe that's and, part and of it. Hickman has admitted that yes, the death was basically to get rid of the Phantom X body. Yeah. That's the whole purpose. It doesn't but help he, also when you have the Maker still showing up and it has the, basically the same look because he's got a helmet on. And yeah, he has an elongated back to it. But yeah. the other big problem I had with the X first number one pissed me off because I remember part of Huxbox and, and the whole resurrection protocols mm-hmm. that Xavier's part of it all was such a huge key and it's a big like asterisk if Xavier dies what the fuck are we going to do? Well, they right? did have two issues of Jean Grey freaking out if she could actually fix him. So that was, but, but it didn't. But it didn't. You knew it was way too early to do. Like I felt that that bullet was way too early to unload. Mm. Way too. Early. I, I know you had to do it to fix that character flaw for Phantom X. Yeah. Right. You had to respect. You respect no other continuity. Why do you even bother with that? Is my point, I guess. Um, right. Because I was because a lot of the other ones aren't as big. Like except, and you didn't like, have it in the main X book. It was a random X Force book. I I think X Force to me is pretty. Like is that I would say like if I had to look at all the X books, I would say that it and X Men are the core books. That's I mean I, don't, I might be wrong. I might not be you know that might not be the the regular consensus. But I mean I look at the rest, and I don't think they're as important for the overall experience than those. Because otherwise, like like Excalibur's it's weird thing. It's his own island. I like it more than you do for sure. I like the art. Uh, yeah, it's nice. That's where it ends. Uh, Fallen Angels was some... I don't know what that was. Nope. It was a weird story. You really want to make Psylocke something. Well, or whatever Psylocke is now, because right? it's, it's the other one. It's the Quanon or Quanon, Ranch, or whatever correct. you want to call it, right? Yes. And I don't even know what that character is. And I, it, it maybe, well, they tried to give it to you in Fallen Angels, and it was still confusing. It was not good. No. And the, it's interesting that both Betsy's, or like both Psylocke's... Are leading books? Are leading books. Yeah. yeah it's very... like Of all the characters because Psylocke is in... Is in uh, Hellions now. That's right. Yeah. Right? So she finished the Fallen Angels. Hellions so far, two issues in, has been much better. Yeah. Right? But it's interesting how, like, there's, you have, everyone's an Mm X-Man, and I I guess you're trying to have some older costumes to help you remember who who certain people are, for sure. Yeah. 
But like it's weird when they mix them together, though. Yeah, like, different right. Eras, you're it, like, what's it, it, yeah, yeah, Hellions especially, right? Like you have Havoc wearing an old Havoc well, costume, even and then before Dawn of X, an old Hellions costume. Yeah. Even before Dawn of X, when you had the Uncanny X Men book that Matthew Rosenberg was writing, it was the same idea. You'd have you know Scott wearing a classic like, animated series outfit, and then Havoc would be wearing something completely more modern. You know? Yeah, it was just a weird disconnect because they're right. so different in eras. Yeah, like Wolverine's back to his brown. That's fine. I'm still not selling Jean being back in an old Marvel costume. I don't know why. Well, you really you bought in pretty hard to X Men Red. Like you like that, yeah. Tom Taylor's kind of take on the whole thing was great, yeah. It's, it's funny. I, I feel almost bad for Taylor in a way because Hickman comes in and he says like all the reboots, everything we try and do, all this stuff that a piece and this and that always fails, right? And almost he slaps Hickman, Taylor stuff in the face. Um, saying, oh, yours, yours I don't failed think too. that way. I think part of why everything always fails is because there was never a concerted effort to put everything under the one under the one auspices, like um, under the one tent. They would always relaunch one book, but the other books are still happening. So there was never a consistency of the new vision. So you had always had these different visions butting up against one another. But because Hickman is one of the few creators that could probably go into anywhere and be like, I have a vision. Let me kind of be like an editor. I'm going to be the showrunner. You, you edit the books and help put together the teams. But I have the ideas. And I'll coordinate with the different writers, but it's going to be coming out of this vision. No one's ever done that like that. No, and that, so I think that. But that's that's what sets this apart as something that can work. Is because when you read all these Dawn of X books, yes, they're varying quality, but you can't dispute the fact that they all still feel like they're part of that vision, and they're adding again more spokes to it, and the more how you know levels to this gigantic house that we're building that we're not really getting inside yet, but they're building that. Whereas usually you'd have you know. It, Someone would come in and write a, a new book and a whole new take, but it's over here. It's a different. It's a different house. Like even when Grant Morrison came on, he was building his house, but Uncanny still existed, and it was being influenced by the movies and a little bit by Grant Morrison, but not really. And it was its own thing, and it was shit. But like, so you couldn't really shift the X Men universe because you still had this, and at the same time, you had Extreme X Men, which was completely did not give a fuck about the rest yeah. except for whenever it would sometimes have to bring some of those characters over, and then they'd look like they did in those other books. Which is again very modern and very like like the X Men movies, but they'd be in their classic costumes and it'd be a weird disconnect when they meet those people. So now we're finally getting a consistency in vision. So that's better. No, it's true. I'll give you that. But so I don't feel bad for. I, I don't think it's you know really disparaging against any of the creators that came before who tried to set things up and try to do things because it just it wasn't a consistent line wide approach. And now that you have the line doing it it's going to work better. And I think we're seeing that even with some of the books that don't work as well, they still feel consistent and it still feels like you're getting the, you know, the same idea. Well, for the most part. I, mean, I can agree with speaking, that, yes. Um, like some books still, like, again, Excalibur doesn't feel like it's connected to much No, of but anything. it's still playing in the, enough in the sandbox that you can see it. It, and it, it is... We well, you know Apocalypse is up to something. It's got Morgan Le Fay gagged up in a dungeon and doing weird experiments on her. Right? Sexy time. And, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, you know, again, I don't know what Rogue is anymore. No. Or what she does, what her so it's what power a, she has today, this week. Yeah. So it's been a year. Obviously, COVID derails stuff. We have X of, or sorry, Ten of Swords coming. Yes. What is your feeling on that, given it's a 24-issue epic? Do you think this is going to stick the landing? Do you think this is a I, th- I think it's too early to jump in on some weird event. 
right? Because unless again, unless unless, 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 unless we don't know built, anything about it, yeah, like we don't know what. It and is. you haven't been teasing shit with swords at any point, right? So it covers, but like the cover, and then we know there's a lot of new characters coming out of it, yeah. Which is again, we're having so many new characters thrown out of us, which is both good and bad, right? Like it's comic book characters or comic book fans want to not just have the same characters over and over again. But at the same time, we don't want too much new, too much, too fast. But who are they? Like, who are they fighting against? Right? Because look at that fucking Quiet Council. It's all full of bad guys. Like yeah. X Men, like long standing, top tier bad guys yes. are on their top <laughs> council running so this shit. Sebastian Shaw, Sebastian Shaw, Emma Frost, Apocalypse, Sinister, Magneto. Mystique, Magneto. Like what? Like Magneto's the only guy I, I give a pass to on the whole fucking. Mystique's an interesting one because, like, Mystique's always been relatively self-motivated. She's flip-flopped fine, but you don't trust her. No. Right? That's someone you can trust to run the council of the fucking Well, that's why they have her because they... They the Hellfire Club. They have... assassinated Kitty Pryde. They have the, uh... Yeah. They have the, I mean, um... You know, they they have Mystique under the finger because Mystique wants Destiny. And the only way she can Destiny is back above Xavier. He's not going to give it to her. No. Well, she but the council. Hmm? She should have been the council. No. no. She should be more like X-Force Eagle kill shit for me style. Not it down. has been refreshing to have the X-Men books finally being at the top of your read pile every week. Like something you want to read. Like there was a long period there where a lot of other books eclipsed it. And it just, for sure. X-Men were not exciting. And again, as you said, like there was... You know, there wasn't a consistency of vision, so you might be reading one X book, but you didn't really need to read the rest because they were so different and they weren't doing the same thing and they never really connected in a way that mattered or was meaningful. And now you feel like, I need it all. I need to read everything. It's all part of this giant, giant tapestry. The trade paperbacks are fucking weird because they have the Dawn of X 1. All the number one issues. Yeah. And it's just like, that's... I, how do you... It reminds me of a, a cross-gen comics model where they had something called The Forge and, I think, The Edge. And it was just, like, the next issue of a couple different books. It was a, kind of like a magazine style. They have a few issues in it. And it was just like, what's the rhyme or reason of that? And I feel that way with Donna Vax. Like, it's just a weird... Like, I'm really curious who's buying that. Like, that's such an, an unsatisfying way to read a book. You're going to read five different trades to get the five issues of a book? Yeah, and it'd be very hard to focus on all the story. Like, I'm obviously... Well, even more so, like, a book like New Mutants, which was already fucking weird, uh, because they had, like, alternating We're in issues. space, we're in a farm, which is, we're back on Earth. Yeah, yeah and, like, different creative teams, and it's just like, why, the was that the, why was that the choice? Well, some of them are, not yeah. all of them. But well, why was that your choice? Why would you do it that way? I don't know. I don't know. And, like, even the trades are weird, because they have, like, X-Men by John... Or, sorry, New Mutants by Jonathan Hickman. It's, like, issues like, what? One, three, five, and seven something, something like that, yeah. And the rest are going to be by the other one. It's just like, what is happening? Yeah, it's an odd choice. It was an sure. odd choice. It could have been two different miniseries. Yeah. It didn't need to be all in one book. I don't think so. Um, but I guess when you think about it, when you're reading books week by week, you are reading them in a jumbled fashion anyways. True, yeah. So it's like reading a book. But I guess when you have an trade form, I feel like you can focus on the one story. I want to read yes. that one story, start to finish, and I have five books by my side to try and flip-flop between. Yeah. I want to just focus on the one X-Force But I guess if also if you want arc. to keep up to date, the Dawn of X-Books come out pretty fast. Uh, the after releasing them? Okay. Right, because you don't have to wait for, for six issues to be done before you get the trade. Yeah, fair enough. And if people are, are, are being trade waiters, yeah. that's an easy way to peel those It's people. an interesting way Marketing to get people to do yeah, it. Give them a try. Why not? Because it's, it's, it's like a month out. 
so you might go, or you may be behind on the day yeah. one or two months. But if it fails as an initiative, and you're but you're into it, and they stop doing those things, they go, fuck, aren't you? You never know. Well, here's the thing. Every time someone picks up a Don of X volume, even if it does end up early, they can thank their lucky stars it wasn't a DC Comics initiative. Because that would have been like, you pre-order and then they cancel it before it even fucking comes out. And then they change it to a hardcover and they cancel that. Like, they're the fucking worst at that. Their collections department does not know what the hell they're doing. DC's is, sorry, Marvel's is a, a crazy machine. They know what they're doing. Like, a million formats, but they know what they're doing. Like, they have... I, I feel like they probably have Jonathan Hickman's spreadsheets and, <laughs> and, and text pages and grids, and they know what they're doing. Like the amount of stuff that's been like reprinted in like so many different formats, where people will slave to that stuff is insane. Right. But I don't know. I'm. It's the most excited I've been about the X Men in. I don't know. Probably since Astonishing X Men or Messiah Complex, maybe. Like I wasn't excited for Second Coming. Um, you know, I, I was definitely excited for Astonishing X-Men because that felt like X-Men again. It did. Because I hadn't really been reading the other X-Men books at the time. I wasn't really enjoying them anymore. Uh, I think I might have been buying Uncanny, but it felt more like I had gotten back into a habit. And this is this is going to sound crazy. We all know that Claremont is never as good as it was in his original, like, what, 15-year run or whatever it was. But the X-Men books, I had enjoyed them so little that when he came back on and, like, 2002 or 3 I was excited I was in because I was like finally some X-Men stuff because before that you had like Austin and Garbage and suddenly suddenly Claremont made me excited right Alan Davis and I'm like yes they're stuck in the Savage Land and Rachel Gray becomes a dinosaur person let's do this this sounds like X-Men let's go that's how that's how beaten I was as a fan of X-Men that I wanted to get back into it was hard and at the same time you'd have like Astonishing X-Men which was beautiful and absolutely gorgeous and that I remember being really excited about it I remember being really excited about the Messiah Complex because it felt like X-Men meets Terminator you know and you have this time travel element and you have two as much as I hated the character assassination of Bishop I did like that you had the kind of two competing time travelers trying to stop something yeah Uh, that was really cool but that's probably the last time I was really excited about X-Men so it's nice to finally be excited again no, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. I, guess, I, I want to know anything, where R.B. Silva went. Why, why do we... The, the two artists behind Hawks and Pox. So good. Yeah. And why are they doing the regular book? That's very true. Is he coming back for Tennis Hearts? I, I don't remember. I think he honest, is. But I think so. I want to say he is. I, I hope he's been doing it for a year. <laughs> well, where'd he go? That'd be the prettiest book ever. Because, honest to God, those books were not just so well-written. Their art was spectacular. They're gorgeous. Yeah. And Some of the panels were just... Fantastic. And the details, and yeah. and it was interesting seeing X Men go to Lionel Francis U because he's not a new hand, and the coloring did not like the coloring of Laraz and Silva felt very new and really popped off the yes. page. It was electric, yeah. and then Lionel Francis U stuff, the coloring was flat. It didn't feel like it didn't pop because there's a lot of lines too, right? Dark yeah, and stuff. Up. But I, I mean, I mean, you can still pick a lot of that stuff up with the colors if you want to. And they just paired them up with the colors who I guess didn't want to do that, and they gave it a very different look. So that, like it was, it was, it was disarming at first to go from Hawk's box with again having these amazing pencilers, very new style with these colors that really popped at you, and suddenly you have Lana Francis U, great artist. I'm not trying to say he's not, but the colors aren't really up to that level. It's kind of like. You know, you. Exp- I mean, well, Ethan Van Skyver is problematic because he's part of Comicsgate, which is part of a whole racist thing. But I mean, but his artwork back in the day on Green Lantern was really good. But yeah. but his colorist really made it work. 
because it felt like the most vibrant Green Lantern book you've ever read. And I remember Green Lantern Rebirth felt like, holy crap, this is amazing. It's electric. The colors are just bursting off the page. And then you have um, Pacheco and some really boring colorist on the regular Green Lantern book for the first eight issues. And I was just like, this is terrible. Yeah. This is this just feels boring. So dull. Yeah. And if you read it right after it, you're just like, oh, wow, what happened? And it made me realize how important... That might have been one of the first times I really appreciated colorists. That colorists can make... I was coming from a colorblind guy. Yeah, right? <laughs> but like, you know, as a kid, you don't really notice the colors. Like, you know, it's, it's the art. It's the, you know, the, what the... You know, the 100%. The, the characters look like. But that was probably the first time in, what, 2004 or five, where I really felt that colors really mattered and it could really make or break a book. Uh, anyways, I felt the Hawks box had great colors, and I've just been sad that we haven't seen those artists since. It's very true. So, Ten of Swords, who knows? I guess, I hope it... 24 chapters, though. Wasn't it supposed to be less? And something... It was initially, and someone thought, hey, let's make it bigger. Well, yeah. Well, I, I know they had to adjust some plans, and, and, and they have a few books that canceled because of COVID, right? Yeah. They make some adjustments. To Empires had that, too, because... Um, oh, have you read... I, I'm imagining you haven't. But have you been reading any of the Black Panther and the Agents of Wakanda? No. Okay. Quirky as hell book by Jim Zub. A lot of fun. Had one of my favorite panels of the entire year. Uh, Brew uh, riding a slightly miniaturized version of Fing Fang Foom. <laughs> Fucking amazing. First of all, Fing Fang Foom at one point is like small, like smaller than Brew. Then he gets big. And then Brew rides him for a little bit. And it's incredible. That was the last issue. And I was just like, how is this book ending? This is so good. It was so much fun. It was so weird and wacky, and you just fun books never last. I, they never do. They never um, but not like fun and like silly. It was just it was just a it was a big adventure, and, and yeah. everything was like short. It was like two or three issue arcs, um, which I really appreciate too. That you get like nice good stories, but you don't get stuck with like a six issue arc. If it doesn't work, then you're stuck with six issues. Right. Whereas at least if you have one or two issues, three issues tops, it's kind of like the Exiles model. If it didn't work, move on to the next one. It doesn't matter, right? But that book was really great. But it was supposed to lead into an Empire tie-in, which has now been canceled due to COVID. So if you read the last issue, it says, oh, they're going to be over here. Mm, no. I believe that book has been canceled, um, which is unfortunate. But Empire feels like it's both contracted, but it was already so big to begin with, so that's probably fine. Yeah. So Lose a few. Who cares? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, again, I hope... Like, I, I want the layers to toe down at some point, and I want it... like. Let's, let's go in one of those directions for a bit, mm. right? Let's follow let's follow a trail instead yeah. of building, 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 introducing it, like constantly throwing stuff at us, yeah. And then building this huge mountain. And how are you going to loop back to all this at some point? It is interesting because like this is the first time Hickman's really gotten a chance to do this because like his first big like big two world building was when he did like Secret Warriors, Fantastic Four, and Shield at the same time. And Fantastic Four was definitely a big epic, but it always felt like it had it was punctuated by moments where, oh, this is where they were going, and then we'd eventually come back to, oh, wow, that's where, where they were really going, and there was always these these callbacks. And this one feels like we're just not we're, we haven't had any real callbacks yet, and maybe that's what Ten of Swords will end up being, but we don't even really know what's the like we can't see the shape of it. And I guess that's probably the part that bugs you more, is that with a lot of the other books, it felt like we saw the shape. Like Avengers and New Avengers. We saw the shape. Right. Right? Right from, right from the beginning. Like, we saw the incursions happening. We didn't know what the shape of Ex Nilo and all that weird build bullshit was. But we, at least for New Avengers, saw a shape of the story. And I think if you saw the shape, maybe you'd feel different. And this is, again, the first time he's been able to kind of be the architect 
of not just his own books, but someone else's books. Right. And working with a lot of different people collaboratively. So it's interesting yeah. to see. I'm curious when the experiment ends. Because I think that's the big question. And we talked about that the other day. Is that off mic? Is that, you know, this is all well and good for now. But what happens when Hickman's done? What happens when he walks away? Does he... It, what's his ending? It, what's his secret wars? Yeah. You know, and where's that going to leave the X-Men going forward? Exactly. Because this is all well and good for now. But, like, we trust Hickman, and we trust the people he's put together. But, you know, he can't just... Like, he's not someone like Bendis, where Bendis sets up things and then just kind of peters off. Like, all new X-Men had that. Where he brought them in, and then he wasn't... Did really, nothing with them. Didn't do enough with them, and then just kind of left. And then it was up to someone else eventually to fix it. Now, Extermination was good, thank God. It was a really rip-roaring adventure, and it felt like, okay... It was so... An X Men yes. book, right? and, it was, and, so and it was interesting too because that book felt fucking packed. Yeah, like it was so full of content. It was interesting. It felt like a book that wasn't really hyped. It was like four issues. Yeah, didn't tie into anything else. No, they just like, we, got, rid- we got to send them home. Get Let's rid of do those it. kids, but do it yeah. in the most awesome. Yeah, and it was great. Big budget way book. possible. Love it's it. an awesome book. Yeah, and then you leave into like all this Rosenberg stuff. We had the multiple teams, and I, it's interesting to look at historically. Obviously, they did that with the Uncanny X-Men for, I guess, a couple of reasons. They probably knew Hickman was coming at the time. Now, when they launched that book, we didn't know. No. But they must have known. And also, they had seen Avengers No Surrender work, which was, you know, three different writers. They were super far in advance. They had all their scripts basically done before it was even announced. Oh, wow. Now, that's how crazy they... Because they, they had Mark Wade, And Mark Wade had lived through 52. And so he tells stories about, you know, what they did before and what worked and what didn't. So you have these three guys, Al Ewing, and again, sorry, I'm all over the place, but Al Ewing's fascinating because uh, when I was talking to Jim Zub about working with him, I was like, okay, Al Ewing obviously knew that he wanted to do Immortal Hulk. It's all in that issue. That first issue in, in No Surrender, everything that became Immortal Hulk is in that issue. What? The, how did that happen? Like, Because when you read it at the time, you don't know. That entire storyline, like four, uh, well, right now it's been three years, but three years worth of stories are going to come out of this. And you don't know, but it's all there. And things that you don't, like, you go back and you see things you didn't notice before. And I asked him, like, did you guys know that this is what he was doing? It's like, he was so obsessive about the Hulk. Like, he knew what was going to happen. Like, wow. He had plans and among plans, and he wanted to do this. Because I'd had a chance to talk to Al and be able to then talk to someone else who was in the room with him to see, like, what was this like? Because it's all there. Anyways, I don't know. What, I forget exactly what my point was, but you know, they they had the, all these you know people put together. So I'm just curious from the timing of it all. How early did they know they had Hickman on? And then they put down this weekly book, but they knew it probably didn't matter. So it's just I'm curious why. Right. I'd love to talk to the X Men editor again. I because I Jordan White. I don't know when he got involved with the X Men books. That's okay. the problem. Because I have interviewed him before, and I haven't actually been able to get him back on yet. Because he used to be the Star Wars guy for a long time. And then they handed him the keys to the X-Men. I, I mean, who wouldn't take the X-Men? Although, he loves Star Wars, so I'm actually a little surprised. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he walks over to X-Men. And yeah, I'm just curious, from an editorial perspective, how early did they know things and what it was like to work with writers who knew that their work might be invalidated later? And I've never really been able to ask that question. And I kind of got there with Kelly Thompson, but not like enough. And it wasn't as clear to me some of the things that now are more clear uh, when I talked to her last. But I'm just curious about that kind of stuff. I love the backroom shenanigans. Absolutely. Behind-the-scenes stuff always fascinates me, right? And especially this stuff. And, like, Hickman's a guy who doesn't... He does interviews, but not, like, a lot. 
And then not a lot of, like, you know, kind of long-form podcasts. He's probably vague as fuck. Probably. And, like, I'm, I'm just curious what he's like. You know, like, because you never hear him. Jason Aaron's another one where you don't really hear them talk. So you have to kind of build in your head hmm. what you think they're actually like. I mean, in my head, unfortunately, and no disrespect meant to these people, but they sound like Warren Ellis and Alan Moore, which is, like, crazy. But, like, in a good way. Right. Like, you know, like, they have a... You know, a cave downstairs, and they practice magic, but they create this amazing work, and it's okay. <laughs> um, actually, that's been an interesting thing about the past year: all the abuse allegations that have come up against a lot of different creators, Warren Ellis being one of them. So, which has made people reevaluate their relationship with people's work. And this has always been an interesting thing about cancel culture: is that when people are revealed as being not so good, how does that allow us? Are we still allowed to enjoy that work, or does the work go away? And, like, I, like, there's a lot of creators that are like that. Brian Wood was one where, you know, more allegations came out against him. His projects got canceled. And Brian Wood did a lot of stuff I loved. But, like, am I allowed to still like that? Like, how, what is our relationship with these people? So, I mean, Warren Ellis is someone who I always thought was an amazing writer. I'd read his stuff and just blow my mind. But, like, you know. Around Dark Thunderbolts, right? Uh, that was one of the many yeah. things he's done. Um, you know, and he did like those few issues of Secret Avengers, so, like the best issues of that run. There was a time travel one with like Black Widow, which is like mind blowing. But like now, people do stuff, and how do we, you know, feel about that? No, it's not like he did a Bill Cosby, but again, Bill Cosby is another one where, like, when I was younger, I used to go to Bill Cosby concerts. I loved the Cosby Show. Yeah. And now, you know, can we divorce the art from the person or not? I guess it depends on the person. I suppose. Yeah, I, yeah. Like, it's just because he did bad things doesn't make his story a bad story, right? True. Does it make you a bad person for enjoying his work? I don't know. But can you still support that person? Can you buy someone that would put money in their pocket? <sighs> per- no. If I've already, if I've, if, like, if I've already owned his Dark Green Thunderbolts, I got it. So, uh, yeah. It's, but it's would a you buy deal. something new? Would I buy something new? Well, he's not going to produce anything new, so what does it matter? Well, maybe he will. Maybe someone will like, maybe we'll do it independently, or maybe it's a new collection of something. Like, I, 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 I know of this link because you're telling me secondhand, right? I haven't read anything. I don't know any okay. facts for anything. Okay. So, you know, if I dig into it more, maybe I'd make a decision to avoid that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I didn't know, Brian, what do you do? Until you mentioned it just now, I have no idea. Yeah. I have a bunch of Star Wars books and uh, that one X Men X- All uh, Girls. Yeah, yeah, the All Girls. Oh, yeah. What was it called though? X Men. It's just called X Men. Yeah, okay. I think I think the trade was called Primer. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, like I've talked to him about that. Like that's you know it's it's weird because I've talked to some of these people too. Really, just him, I guess. Um, but <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting. It was funny because I was looking up. So I, I don't think I've heard the most recent stuff about Brian Wood. And Amazon had a listing for um, a book that he'd done. I think it was Rebels, which I loved. And I have it digitally and have it in softcover, both volumes of it. And they were doing like a compendium with both. And then suddenly the release date was like 2048. So it's not coming. Um, and I looked, I tried to look something up and it was like, oh, they've canceled his books. I'm like, oh shit. So I guess that's not for coming. And that's like a legit, like, just they just didn't cancel the listing, but it's basically yeah. canceled. And part of it was like, you know, wanted to reach out to him, but like, but I was like, that's so soft. Like, you can't touch something like that. You can't. That's, yeah. a, that's a tricky, it's a sticky wicket, right? So you don't want to go near that. It's, well, it's, yeah, I guess it's weird. I guess the only, the only comparable I can give, and this is a very dark and terrible comparable, but um, in the wrestling world, I used to watch wrestling a lot. Mm-hmm. Chris Benoit, a Canadian wrestler, mm-hmm. pretty popular. Um, 
well-loved within the wrestling community, um, and it had come to be known that him and his family were dead. Oh. And uh, so to honor his passing, there was a big a big show big, uh, that the Raw, the Man at Raw that night mm-hmm. was big and, and honored him the whole night long. Okay. And then more information came to light, and um, again, I, I, this is my remember back then. I don't know if anything changed since then, but um, the story came to he went mental, oh. killed his family, killed himself. Oh, shit. Right? And then from there, all of his merchandise gone, all of his yeah. history on the website gone, his hands at Niagara Falls, you know, yeah. the WWE store taken off. Like, really? everything about him wiped clean and erased yeah. as far as wrestling was concerned. And I, I, I had a t-shirt of this guy. I liked him. He was Canadian, yeah. right? And who knows what level of mental health or what, what caused this whole yeah. crazy, a terrible, terrible tragedy thing to happen. Yeah. Um, so it, I always questioned to myself, do am I still a fan of this guy because he did this terrible thing with his family? Like, or well, if he was what creating art. He was creating art. Yeah. Like, so is, are you still okay with the art? Like, I, do I still respect the legacy and what he did before that crazy thing happened? Mm. I, don't, I don't know. It's it's it's, it's, it's very crazy conundrum. And, and yeah, finding out like it's it's it's, it's funny how things because at least I mean obviously that, that's awful, <coughs> awful comparable. Yes, but it was something that happened after the work. Yes. Which I thought that it makes it different, but like, but you find about all stuff for the work. It's usually one but, thing that happens. A lot of these guys are doing stuff in and around the same period. Like, right. While they're doing the art, they're doing something terrible. They're grooming people. They're doing sexual like harassment or assault, or yeah. and, and they're really damaging people's careers and for sure. livelihoods. Seems all the actors and Kevin Spacey and all those guys did. Yeah, it. and they're we doing things this... while they're doing the work. Exactly. And I think that's even more problematic because I mean, then that obviously that is an awful example, but at least. Like that happened after the work. I don't know why I'm trying to d- differentiate to me, but I think it does make somewhat of a difference. It's so awful. Like that's yeah. In the end, right? So yeah. But again, the end like, result is awful. Yeah. Would I refuse to ever watch a match of his again because he did this afterwards? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know whether I can respect the part of that that was good before he went crazy or yeah because he did that. No, I have to disown. Or, again, I, I don't know. It's really weird. Such a slippery slope. It's really hard. I'm sure that people listening like, oh my god, you idiot. No. Well, and that's the thing too, right? Like, if you support the, the work, it, does that mean that you're allowing what that person did to be okay? No, I'm not in any way, shape, or form. No, but yeah. and I guess that's the issue, right? Is that if you, will, if you still buy or support something from that person, then are you just propagating? Right, yeah. <laughs> it's such a dangerous game. It's brutal, right? So, um, in this past year or so, I a lot of this is a certain amount of time, so we're going to run out of that time. <laughs> of but we uh, obviously, we haven't talked about you know the impact of COVID nineteen on the industry. Um, the two major things that have come out this past year: uh, we had a very sudden departure of Dan DiDio from DC Comics, mm-hmm. which like him or hate him, I think I would come on down on the side more of liking him. Uh, I think I respect him as a guy who always felt like he took big swings. He was always very public with things. He was never he would never shy away from a controversy. Yeah, he was always um, on interviews, on panels. Yeah, interviews. He, he felt never like someone hit away. Was, yeah, yeah he, he believed in what he did, yeah. and even if it didn't always work, he believed in the attempt. And I really respect that from anyone who's, especially in a creative industry, to try things for sure. And like the new Fifty Two, we make fun of it because it didn't always work. And it really fucked up continuity and, and, and that type and things something that fans really care about. 
but it tried really hard to make it easy for new people to get in. And I think it did for a while work to get some people new in. And they tried so many different things. Like the amount of genres they tried. 52 books. Like, it wasn't all superheroes. They did everything. They had, like, war comics again. Like, that type of thing. Like, Mm -hmm. I give credit to that. I was kind of sad he's not around. Uh, Because it was nice to have a really vibrant personality. It's interesting that since Joe Quesada left Marvel, we haven't really had a vibrant EIC. Like, we've had Axel Alonso. But he never really felt like he was, you know, that out there. And and C.B. Sabalski, very well-respected. And a great, I think probably is a great editor-in-chief. But in terms of a real, you know, person that you can see and talk to. A personality, yeah. Yeah, and having a personality, I don't think he's there. So you've lost this great personality. And it was interesting, too, because, you know, for a long time, you had him and Quesada were at the top. And Quesada had stepped away for a while, like a long time ago. And then we finally lost this other one. So I was kind of sad to see him go. That was my feeling on it. I don't know how you feel about Dan Dio or if you have any feelings, but... I was shocked when I kind of saw the news about it. And then it felt very sudden. Yeah. I think that's the thing, right? right? Like, he was there for so long, suddenly Jim Lee's just running the ship alone. Then you have a pandemic happen. Yeah. And then, like, I, I feel like the parent company must be doing more and more. Um, like Warner Brothers? Or AT&T or whatever. Like, whatever different... The Warner Brothers, I think they were owned by someone else now. No, maybe. I can't remember, but it's corporate bullshit. Um, we have all this messy stuff. And then you have them dropping Diamond, which felt like a crazy thing when it was happening. I I'm, I don't run a store, so I don't know what it actually feels like on the boots on the ground, but it always looks like a nightmare to go from... Like, even when I do my review shows, I used to go to previewsworld.com, which was Diamond's website, mm-hmm. and I would go through, these are all the things that were listed. And I'm like, where's the DC stuff? <laughs> There's no like, consolidated spot. You have to kind of go to their website, and it's not as easy to find stuff. Um, so I can only imagine what it must be like for people ordering comics. Uh, for these stores and having to deal with different distributors than they ever had to use before probably higher freight the whole thing's a mess yeah especially on the Canadian side right with uh, mm-hmm. duties fees taxes all kinds oh, of yeah. stuff you have a, like, I'm sure you got a like, book ordered as one thing from Diamond yeah. now you got to get from this from this from this plus your discounts are probably less because you're probably buying 30% less now because if generally speaking the units sold DC makes up 30-35% so if you're buying 30-35% less than you were yeah. prior to the pandemic, you might be paying a lot more as a result because you're not buying as much quantity. Um, so it's, it's I'm really curious how long it lasts. Uh, Marvel tried this once. They bought a distributor, and it fucking was terrible. almost killed the industry. Um, so it'll be curious what to see happens when we talk on episode 900 uh, a year from now <laughs> to say what happened with this big experiment. What happened? And they're not even using like, DC, like a bunch of the toys and stuff now are going diamond as well. So the whole thing is so shattered. Sounds very much like DC's wheelhouse. It's just a weird year to do it. You know, of all the times to do it, this is the time. Like, you're trying to get people back in the stores. Retailers are hurting. And they didn't, it, like, the pandemic was already happening, right? So they could have almost not pulled the trigger, realizing, well, maybe during the weird, well, crazy part during of the, the pandemic, they decided that they start wanted to start bringing comics back before everyone else was ready. So they were going to use other distributors to do it. And then they rolled out that, oh, yeah, we're not going to use Diamond anymore. But that came, like, after. So like, you think while they were really dealing with these distributors get books out early, they came into a bigger I think so. Bigger I think deal? they figured out, you know what, this might be the time. Fascinating. Because we need something else because, for some reason, we want to get our books out two to three weeks earlier than Diamond's ready. And uh, some, it's interesting, too, because, like, a lot of people are, like, hating on Diamond. And, yeah, I'm sure Diamond does suck. As a monopoly, I'm it sure. It does suck to deal yeah. with one distributor, but... There's also so much better about dealing with one-stop shop 
For sure. 100%. Because all your ordering simple. 100%. And if, if it's a framework that's been in place for 20 years, you know how to use their system. They have to use different systems. Yeah. And, and only for DC books. Yeah, only for right? DC books. And DC's trying to push the whole Tuesday on order thing. And like stores are allowed to just hold it to Wednesday if they want, or they can put it on sale Tuesday. And Marvel doing classic Marvel, having variant covers that's on sale Wednesdays. Mm-hmm. I'm like... You're, you, like sometimes I forget that Marvel it's can like, be so petty. It's like cheap shy. Like why? So petty. Why? This is that Danny I know. Disc all over again. Like don't be, don't be shitty. Um, it just felt like a weird kind of you know punching yeah. below the belt. Yeah, I agree. Which up until then it felt like they were kind of rising above. I'm like no, 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 no. I, I thought too much of them. Yeah, dumb idea. Dumb idea. The whole thing is weird. Um, I'm interested to see. As Marvel kind of ratchets up all its production again, because we haven't quite seen that yet, we're starting to see books every week again. Theirs was an interesting model, right? Like they were dripping out books. Like every other every other week, they would have new comics, and then the other week they would have trades, and that was it. And that was kind of an interesting model. I don't know if that works for retailers, but it was an interesting model to kind of slowly get people back into, into yep. the industry, as opposed to DC just kind of shoving shit out there. And then both companies were under flack for some of their books transitioning to digital only and not ending. And so certain books, like there's a Hawkeye Freefall, which I think now is going to get a digital release. But initially, I think the last two issues were only digital. I circled back and doing physical for yeah, some of those. For yeah. some of them, they're finally doing that. But that's weird, too. I think Jane Foster Valkyrie was a couple of those, too. Was she one of them? I yeah. think so. So it's just a weird It's a weird time, right? Yeah. And like, I pre-ordered a lot of trades, and like all my pre-orders got pushed back like six or seven months, yeah. which is fine. But it's, it's just weird. Well, and some of the cool stories that came out of it, too, was like the uh, Donnie Cates buying people, people's pull list in Texas. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know? yeah. There's a few people who did that, yeah. too. The whole store. And they were doing a lot of... Uh, I can't remember which website it was doing it, but they would do these charity events where they would have like a creator and they'd have like 20 people could buy like time and like a Zoom call and just ask questions. There was one I wasn't around for. I think it was actually at the cottage back in June, but they did one that was just cross-gen alumni and just talking about cross-gen. Uh-huh. And I'm like, that sounds amazing. But part of me is like, if I can't record it for a podcast, what's the point? <laughs> you know, like, you know, record it or it didn't happen, you know, like, but it's very cool that they're doing that as a way to try and crowdfund, you know, resources for those who are hit hardest by, you know, you know, not necessarily being pencils down, but work's drawn up. You know, books maybe aren't, you know, as I said, are canceled or aren't happening anymore and, you know, everyone's plans are changing. Yeah, what's your cash flow, right? Because how are you paying these artists and writers to produce product if when there's no income coming to selling the books, yeah. right? So cash flow is, is king 100% for sure. So I guess I think you probably had still your Hickmans and your big boys yeah. doing their work while the pandemic was happening, but a lot of the smaller end books got pushed off or canceled because yeah. we can't afford to pay to make them. True. Right? I mean, a lot of books were still going for a while, so they, they have a little bit of a, not lead time necessarily, but they have books in the can and ready to go. And I mean, that's good. I'm excited to see the next year has like I'm always excited to see what we get like I was excited about Empire I haven't really read much of it yet um, but I'm excited for it because it sounds like it could be really exciting and I trust some of the creators at the helm I'm excited about uh, Ten of Swords even though it's too big uh, like that's I, I that's 24 24 chapters so many books like it's insane but you know it's exciting you know it definitely makes me excited DC so they've already established they're going to be 10 bad guys with swords. Yes. Brand new villains. Yeah. They just pull out their ass. Yes. Right? Because we have, so we have, let me go straight, we have Golden Girls, Orcus. 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 Right? Whatever you want to pronounce it. Uh, these 10 new villains, 
the dude with the flamingo tattoo in yep. X-Force. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Scalibur is just shit in the other world. Yes. Right? What else am I missing here for villains? I don't remember. They've set Aliens the table for. I don't know. No, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, Madeline yeah. Pryor's back, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? That's right. Right? Fully, Fuck, fully underboobed and all. Right? Again. Right, we're in that nice outfit, so her and Havoc has it. The last time we saw her is in Matt Fraction's run, around episode, issue 500 or so? <sighs> Lifetime ago. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then Marauders. So like, Marauders is probably one of my favorite books of the bunch. Okay. Right, it's usually pretty consistent. Yes. It's been... It's been a fun I ride. love the fascinating thing that they make Kitty broken. She couldn't walk through the gates. It was yes. very clown. But they killed Kitty. She's still around. She's there somewhere. But Where? They, I don't know. They, 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 like, she was used in X-Men Fantastic Four crossover, yeah. and that just ran longer than it which, should have because did, of the, the yeah. delay. Which made sense, right? too, because like the, the original X-Men Fantastic Four um, miniseries from back in the day was all about Kitty Pride. So there was a thematic extra right. element there. But no one... Kitty was drowned. Uh, Lockheed's been found. Yeah. Right? But And they can't resurrect Kitty. Yeah, but there's been real no, like... How this happened? Who did this? No. Kind of, unless Lockheed's going to come back and then somehow... Maybe. Xavier mind-reads him and they discover it's Sebastian Shaw. But, like, I, it's, it's, it was bizarre to me that no one was really looking look too much deeper into what happened yeah. to Kitty. Hmm. Right? It's true. Layers upon layers. There's right? room in there and we haven't discovered it yet. Yeah. Again, I... I, it's nice to have well, at least one person with complications with resurrection because mm. you've death is meaningless to a degree, right? Yeah. Like, wh- like the one thing that I had when, when watching Scott and Kurt and Logan and, and very viciously that, that panel haunts me still when when the sandals coming in to crash on Gene yep. in in uh, Hawks Pox and okay, boop, they're back, right? Yeah. So, are you telling me? That the original, as I knew them, I grew up with all these gajillion years, those bodies, people, have died. Yes. And now the five made new people and the brains and, and yes. everything is just back. And yes. we're happy. That's, 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 we're going with that. We're, we're going with? Yeah. I still love that issue. Those issues are so brutal. Yeah. But like, you're watching this happen. And you're like, what? You're and, dead? And, is this for real? What? And you what? know it's going to be undone somehow. We don't know how yet. Yeah. No. Right. What a so, journey so I remember, that was. So I remember calling, like, I remember, I remember saying, I read the first, this first issue, and you see the people coming out and reaching yes. to Xavier. I said, oh, that's Gene and Scott. It looks like Gene and Scott to me. Yeah. What's happening here? Are they weird clones? Or are they, what, what is this happening? Yeah. Right? And it ended up being them. And it's like, Would you like to what? get a recut version of Hawksbox where it's all in chronological order? <laughs> <laughs> I, I read that. Yeah, it exists, doesn't it? Some, didn't someone do that? It's not online sure, somewhere. I'm sure, they did. I thought you told me. I think I think it does exist. I think it's out there. Someone actually yeah. kind of cut it together so it's more coherent. Co- uh, Would you have all? So you'd have to have the all the future stuff crap together. First. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be really interesting. Yeah, it'd be. To see how it might help you understand it all a bit better if you read it that way. Maybe it's I don't know. More consistent. Like it, it's heavier stuff. It's not like Morrison level confusing. I don't get it. Shit. No, but it is some really big ideas and really intricate. Right. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's very fascinating. So that's, I, that's what keeps me intrigued by it. But well, full, I think part of what keeps you intrigued is that you you know that that Hickman has an endpoint. Sure, and I think that's what everyone is is waiting for. 
What is the endpoint? What is the endgame? Where's, where's he going? Because right. you know he has one. Because he's not someone who makes it up on the fly. He has no, a plan. Moira's still the X Factor, I think, mm-hmm. in all this, one way or not another. X Factor. Right? But yeah. we haven't seen her since. Like She was the, the key crux of the opening salvo and has since vanished off the face of the planet. And I, and, and I think, I guess, and we've talked about this before, the one question that they will probably never answer, why now? After all this time? Like, if Moira told Xavier that early, why did any of this happen? Why didn't they do it earlier? Why did we get this entire... They're all of continuity we know. How do you make that reconcile with the fact that she told him up front, let him see her mind, we're going to do things differently. Well, that's what I'm saying. This, and yet she goes off and then fucks Matt McTaggart and has... <laughs> right? And has a lot of the timeline doesn't jive because you even see... I think there's a meeting between Xavier and Anita at one point where Xavier's like, no, no, Mags, we're doing this. Oh, oh shit, we gotta do this. And then they go on recruit and get genetically engineered shit from Crazy Sinister mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and all these little things that happen. But, like... When? Like, when? How? how? Yeah, exactly, right? It's like... Well, that's leading up to what we wanted. You want to understand yes, how this all happened. Yes. That's part of that. I hope so. Are we going to get that, though? Well, I guess we'll have to find out next year. Right? We'll talk about what Ten of Swords did. <laughs> Was it a good series right. or not? Because do we... Have we been given a length or a ballpark length of planning this guy has in mind? No. It could be years. That's well, great. It was last time. Yeah, yeah. And Secret Wars was worth it. Secret Wars was great. I would say Secret Wars is actually part of the endgame with his Fantastic Four run. It less to do with his Avengers run and more with his Fantastic Four run for years earlier. Yeah, because it's a Doom story, essentially. Yeah. So yeah. it all goes back to the beginning of that, which was Dark Rain Fantastic Four. That's Dark how, Rain Fantastic Four. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, Any final thoughts? Any final where, final thoughts already? Well, we're over time, so yes. Of course we're over time. My goodness. Well, not uh, a lot, but I, I told my wife that we would do it in an hour, and everyone laughed and said no. Uh-huh. And I, we're at an hour like, four-ish. <laughs> Actually, a little longer, because I didn't record right away. Oh, but, or didn't set my timer right away. Um, if there's a movie next year, you'll be on earlier than this. Yeah, but I hope not 100 episodes away, because that would be... Hopefully Black Widow comes in. The, I if, can't believe it. If Black Widow is in theaters in November, will you go? You're going to go to a movie I, theater. I, I'd like to go. Even in November. Really, I'd really like You'll to wear go. You'll wear your mask. Go go see a movie. I'd like to. Okay. Yeah. If I feel safe to do so. I guess by I November, so. in yeah. theory. Fingers crossed, If you're right? going to have this giant second wave crush us all. Yes, let's hope not. Okay. Yeah, Americans, I wish you well. But uh, here in Canada, I think we can... Uh, it's been better. April was telling me like uh, Cineplex had something approved today. They're opening tomorrow. To, uh, like some theaters were smaller and bigger, so they yeah. got some concessions for them. So My theater is open. Some place. Your so. open. Okay, well, there you go. Uh, so for the best. No, I know. Again, comics have been an interesting thing. Um, reading X books has been exciting. It's one of the top things I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I told you I love the Power Ranger books. They've, mm-hmm. they've taken it. They've done really well since Ryan uh, Parrott took over. Um, Donnie Cates is one of my new favorite mm-hmm. writers now. I think he's on a I, Cosmic Ghost Rider. I, I, Cosmic Ghost Rider for one. Thanos wins. Yeah. I, I read through the Death of the Humans and Sorcerer Black, which yeah, we're okay. Um, but I just hopped on the Thor, right? Okay. And yeah. Jason Aaron, tough act to follow after what he did. Mm-hmm. And so far, I'm really like outside of the character design a little bit when he's all cosmic key and yeah. flowing gold locks. Yes. Um, and the very curious way to retcon, okay, now his arm is back to normal, mm. fix the handle on Mjolnir, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but I am digging what's his first five issues I've read so far. Mm-hmm. 
um, which is awesome because I you always get nervous after such an epic run. Oh, so how long. do you follow that, right? Yeah, I mean it was back when Marvel Now was new. Yeah, like, that's which a is, long which time is ago. Mental, right? Yeah. Mental. And after all the reboots and the rehashes, this all that the, the other axes, thing, all the yeah, original sins, they just kept rolling. All the Secret Wars kept rolling. It's, it's something like Green Lantern back then. Johns was doing it, yeah. right? Even through fifty, the fifty-two happened. No, not in Green Lantern's world. We're just shrugging ahead like nothing happened, right? Um, so I can appreciate him sticking to what he wanted to do and he ran with it the whole mm-hmm. way. And he dealt with the outside shit a little bit, but it was mostly in that little bubble. Yeah. You know, and maybe where the realms end up being a bigger thing than he wanted to be. I think the same thing as mm-hmm. having that Blackest Night. I think where the realms, he wanted to keep it a tight Thor thing. They became a big yeah. MCU thing. MCU, Marvel Universe, thing. Yeah, I get you. Um, but yeah, um, it's uh, nice to have some fun stuff to read mm-hmm. right now for sure. For sure. Well, it's nice to have something that, yeah, that, again, that you're looking forward to, and you don't feel like, ugh, that's 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 what's happening now. I guess I'm gonna have to trudge through this because that always sucks when that happens. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And again, it's nice and exciting to love X Men again. It is. It's been a long time. As big time old school X Men fans, the both of us are living in the '90s. That when the X Men were in their prime, which X-Men. so many people would like throw up even right? thinking about that. Because again, as much as I love Jason Aaron, are you enjoying this Avengers book? No. Right? I really liked it. Yeah. You know, I'm not digging it very much. Right? I think he's trying to be too wacky with it. You know? Yeah. Blade and, and, and boy thing. And, hasn't, and It hasn't really been for me. Yeah, it hasn't really... Hasn't felt like Avengers. Like, he's, he's trying to push it in a direction. And he's trying to do bold, exciting things yeah. that are different and new. I just haven't... I haven't responded to it personally. Exactly. Right? So... And, like, whatever happened to the Squadron Supreme, I felt, felt like that was supposed to be something big. And that was like 25 issues ago. I think they're coming back? They're still there on the board. But they're around. But it felt like, you know, Coulson's back and you got the, you know, the squadron. And I'm like, whoa, what's going to happen? Well, it's still Coulson, but yeah. Yeah, well, anyway. Yeah. Less said, the better. <laughs> not a fan. Okay. No, I'm not. But do you think if Avengers being not so hot helps X-Men being better? Uh, I'm going to say No. Only because X Men is a fran- sorry Avengers is a franchise is still giant because they have all the main characters still count as the Avengers family so everyone's going to kind of if they're loving Captain America they're still going to it's going to feel like an Avengers Wait, is Cap's good book is Cap's good uh, book good right now is Iron Man's Cap's Cap's is very good okay yeah I'm really enjoying it Iron Man I'm not at all okay Thor, Thor is yes. good yes uh, but then you have that Captain Marvel like that's some really good. Uh, uh, Hawkeye has been good. Like you have a lot of Avengers books, whereas the X Men books, you know, they're not a solo act. No, for sure. As you were like, telling my son the other day, or <laughs> you were telling someone. That I was telling someone because like the Avengers, in a way, like they all have their individual books. Always have, right? Yes. So the X Men, Wolverine's got a book. That's it. No solo spin-offs. Or, like no. X Men are a team first and foremost. Which does make the X Men actually have characterization moments matter more than Avengers typically because Avengers can't really push. Characters like Iron Man and Captain America and Thor around because they have other books to do that. Whereas X Men have nowhere else to do that. No. Or you just have, you know, people become Captain Britain for no reason. So, anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, that has been your segment of episode 800. Um, yeah. Thanks for being part of it again. Can't believe it's been 100 issues. 100 Travesty. Episodes. Travesty blew my mind. I did not. Re- again, we talk all the time, so I had no idea that it'd been 100 episodes. Yeah, so we we'll have to we we'll have to rectify that. We will. Yeah. It's all your fault. I blame you entirely. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. All right. Say say goodbye to the beautiful people. Goodbye, beautiful people. 
Eric, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. Where are you today? I am doing fantastic. Congratulations on episode 800, and thank you for having me for it. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, 800 is a, is a big number. I mean, I've been talking about that with everyone, the, just how crazy that seems that eight years ago, I don't know if I thought I'd still be podcasting and that I would be up to this high number, so it's pretty crazy. That's awesome, man. Good for you. So let's, I mean, I, so I uh, had another segment with uh, Dan Gavazdan of the Amazing Spider Talk podcast. We're talk, kind of talking about podcasting in general. Um, just to remind me and the viewers, or listeners, I should say, not the viewers. Well, that's creepy. <laughs> if they're watching me, that's extra creepy. Um, but, uh, you know, when, when did the Cave of Solitude first start? Cave of Solitude first started uh, end of 2014, if memory serves correctly. So I think it went, it was November 2014, I posted my first episode and it was very much like a, a hit or miss type of thing at the time because I was still trying to find out what the podcast was going to be. But it just began as, as a hobby to want to do with a, a pal of mine and it just continued to transform over the years into something different, which I'm happy to say it's still going, that I've stuck with it and made a lot of friends through it. So that's, that's I think, the best part of it. For sure. Yeah, it's interesting how how that works you know like it does go through a transition period when you first start something unless you have a a very defined focus it's very easy for an evolution to happen and it's, it's natural i mean even the the amazing spider talk went through a, a major change over time and i know mine i feel like my show didn't really find its footing until maybe episode 250 if you can imagine uh because you know we'd, we'd have conversations it used to be more me and a couple other people and then people move away it's harder to do things you get children it's harder to do scheduling and then suddenly i figured out that you know if you ask comic creators to be on your show they might actually say yes and that's where the show yeah. really i think for me changed yeah for sure and you know a lot of people ask me i don't know if they ask you too but they say like yo you, you, you're making money off of it what's your end game what are you trying to do with it and i've never had a, a very good answer for it but definitely the journey of it all is what i think makes it special because through it like you said like i've had really great conversations with uh, comic book creators but then you also find yourself like me and you going to baseball games every year and podcasting mm -hmm. while we're you know like all of these little stories that you end up having and people you meet through the channel of the podcast i think that's kind of what makes it special is the the doors that opened up to you that maybe it didn't make you rich and famous which wasn't the intent but you made friends or you had moments that kind of will always stick with you for sure. It's crazy. I mean, like, obviously you can meet people online and become friends with them, but it's almost weirder when, like, you know, when you make friends with someone through a podcast, because in some cases, like, they know you really well, and you may not know them. Because, <laughs> like, yeah. if someone's been listening to me since the beginning, they've heard me a lot. And so, you know, yeah. and, and I've, I've made friends with some of the people who've listened to the show and we've corresponded, and, you know, they've been on the show, and we, it's become something else, which is really special. But it's kind of crazy when you think about it that at the beginning, it's a real, it's a, it's an interesting one-way street. And, like, I find this even with podcasts I listen to. Sometimes you feel like you know them really well, but you're like, but they don't know me at all. So this is kind of a creepy relationship. <laughs> it's true, yeah. No, absolutely. And you do, like, for me... I, I can think of there's been some weeks just listening to your podcast doing like back catalog of, of creators you've had on and I've spent like hours with you in a week of just hearing conversation or even hearing some of your flashback episodes so for sure like you do get to know these people in some capacity absolutely how how would you say how would you define the evolution of your show into what it is now oh man it's so hard to say because like 
I'm on episode 207 around there. I, I don't know the number exactly, but uh, I think I'm like you where it's still finding its footing, but not, not in a, uh, like it's a lost cause podcast. It's just more every year, something that's happening in my life or in the world is opening up different options of what you're going to do with the podcast. So from where it started with, it was going to be kind of like a book club podcast with my friend who, uh, you know, shared uh, um, a liking to comic books, but also just sci-fi in general. We had those type of things in common and music. So we were going to kind of make it different every week. But then, like you said, the scheduling and the interest of the other person just wasn't quite as there, as much there as it was for me. And then I started doing a, a husband and wife podcast with my wife for quite a number of episodes, which was a lot of fun to be able to look back on. And a lot of people enjoyed that version of it. And then it transitioned to interviewing people. Like when, um, I don't know if anybody listening to this show uh, knows of the fastball special with Martin Slam Duncan, we became friends again through the podcast. When he started his podcast after listening to mine by chance, we started to collaborate and interview people. So it's been these just different things that you try along the way. So right now where I'm at because of the pandemic and everything that's happened this year, a lot of people are home right now. So you're having different types of conversations with people who pencils are down or artists that are just doing commissions or even other podcasters like me and you podcast frequently enough and things like that. So it's been a year where the consistency of the podcast has been better than before. Um, it's been pretty much weekly. And I've been able to have a couple people on who I haven't had before, which is really cool. But uh, yeah, it's always always changing, and I'm always interested to see where it might might go next. For sure. I mean, this is a maybe a dumb question, but like, will you make it to 300? Do you want to like? Do you have a like a game plan, or is it just kind of taking it day by day? And if you get to 300, great. Um, I definitely think I'll make it to 300 because I, I what I wanted to do. I guess to answer that question you asked me before, this is a better answer, is that I like having now people who have been on the show before, such as yourself, where we can have sort of um, podcasts where they're themed to what me and you would talk about, Hmm. or when Shane comes on, it's kind of themed to the stuff that me and Shane might like. So then you, you diversify, even though it's a comic book pop culture podcast, what I call it, you diversify the type of episodes you have based upon the guests that you've had come around again. So like you, for your, for your show, uh, I really like when you talk to uh, John Red Thomas. Mm-hmm. Right? It, it's, it's something for me that I enjoy hearing that kind of conversation as a, um, uh, a collector and hearing about collected editions and things like that. So I want to have that sort of show where different people come on that you know them for something, but it's going to become a place where we can just talk about of things that we like almost frivolously but we gain entertainment out of it what was it like so I mean, yeah 300 yeah i want to get to 300 for sure <laughs> so, so you had john red thomas on your show right so what was yeah, what yeah. was it like to go because again he'd been a guest of mine five or six times so you've heard a lot of him and mm-hmm. i don't know maybe that was your first introduction to him was on my show and then you have yep. him on your own so what was it like to kind of convert that experience from just being a listener of this guy and, and finding out about all the things he's done and now you're actually talking to him directly what was that like Oh, it's weird, like you said, because I feel like I know him 
uh, of it, and he and he doesn't know how well I kind of know him, or it's like being that third friend in a conversation at a bar, <laughs> and I've heard I've heard people talk about talk all this time, so I know stuff, so I know where to kind of pick up the conversation and talk about things that they might like or things that they're working on. So for me, it was a lot of fun to be able to now finally talk to somebody who I've listened to for a while, but I also feel like I, I kind of know and there's that connection of like we have a mutual friend so now this show is kind of like or, or the cave of solitude would now be become like uh there's a sort of relationship type of built in because mm-hmm. of mutual friendship so that's that's and i'd like to get him on you know at least once a year let's say so i'm trying to do that sort of that sort of thing with the, with the show what uh what comic creator that you've had on only once do you most mm-hmm. want to have back for a second time oh man I think I would like uh, who I had on once uh, Fabian Nietzsche's I've had on once who I would really love to have on again because he's super easy to talk to mm. and there's so much to talk about um, I'm trying to think who else I've had on once I, I do intend to get Ron Friends back on again because he's again another guy who's so much fun to talk to but you've just exhausted everything there is to talk about I'm just kidding no. I don't think Ron's ever exhausted he's uh, no he, I know. he's a great storyteller and he just loves he loves comics loves talk, loves the business loves talking about stuff like yeah, he, he was a super easy guest because of that kind of love of all things yeah, exactly, and I and I that's where I'd probably if I were to have him on again, I'd want to go into those directions because I don't think I'd ever be able to top you on getting into the work the way you're able to do with him. Like I think that's definitely a, a specialty that you and him have. So I'd want to get into the all of the things that he just loves to talk about because you can go. There's so many stories that they can tell and, and places you can go with. with um, creators like that i'm trying to think who else i've had on only one time oh you know who i was trying to get on was daniel warren johnson mm. i was really excited to get him on um about a year or two ago when he had just uh he was just starting murder falcon after he had finished extremity and i've been trying to email him i haven't gotten a response back but he's a creator who i, I really liked before he, i mean he's kind of blown up now especially with the wonder woman mm. uh, black label uh, work that he's done so i'd love to get him back on again for sure, yeah. Is there anyone who's who like who who eludes you and, and who's on your bucket list that you're almost like afraid to even oh, ask man. because like what where would you even start? My bucket list is very very long because <laughs> there's so many creators out there, right? I'd love to talk to Mark Wade. I would love to talk to. Um, there's a lot of guys that have been on your show actually. And I'm like, man. <laughs> I'd love to talk to that guy, Mark Wade, uh, Roger Stern, the guys from a from a generation who have um, written those stories that the creators today look back on fondly. So somebody like a Roger Stern, who is very important to my childhood, as well as me rereading things as an adult. So I, I appreciate him more now than ever before. Mm. And Mark Wade is a guy who. Um, Pretty much everything he writes, I'll give it a chance to read because I just think he's he's just one of my favorite. He's one of those guys who loves writing comics. Like you really get the sense that he loves this as much as any other fan. Hmm. So I'd love to just talk to him about Superman one day. And of course, I mean the bucket list of bucket list would probably be I don't know like a Jeff Johns, hmm. somebody like that. That's completely probably unattainable at this point. Well, how about you? 
who haven't you spoken to yet? Uh, I mean, obviously a ton. Um, I mean, I think the sentimentalist inside of me, I, I don't know how much of an interview he would give and or how interested he would ever be, but Mark Bagley is always that one that like I would love yeah. to. He, he's one of those people who seems like he has absolutely no digital footprint uh, in terms of being able mm. to kind of find him. Roger Sturm right. is kind of the same way, to be honest, that like, you know, yeah. they exist, but how do you... Like they're almost like a myth. Like everyone usually right. has a Facebook or a, you know, a, a Instagram or a Twitter or something. Uh, but those guys seem to just exist completely off the grid. Right, right. Which you so know I, what? Sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. You didn't finish your thought. Uh, well, no, I, I, I was going to springboard into another one. So go ahead. Oh no, I was going to just say that one of the things I I would like to do in the in the next year. Or more sooner than later is to get more female creators on the show, mm. which I find a little bit challenging to just how to approach it and how to. Um, I don't even I don't even know how to explain it, but I'd like to get more female creators on the show because, to be honest, there's there's just not as many. There's plenty, mm-hmm. but when you think of all of the men who have been in comics throughout the decades and who may respond to you quicker and who to reach out to there's you know obviously it's very outweighed so to get that more representation on the show I would love to be able to do that that's a good point I mean I I've, I guess I haven't had a, I, I've had a bunch of I'm trying to think which female creators I've had on the show I've had In the Senti was a big one early on uh, Barbara, that's great Barbara Kiesel as well I'm trying to think Laura Martin was a recent one where we had two episodes actually which was really nice um Oh my god, I'm, I'm forgetting one of the most obvious ones. Um, oh my god, I can't remember her name. Uh, she's currently writing. Um, Kelly Thompson. Oh yes, thank you. I was like, oh my god, I've had her on a bunch of times. How can I forget? <laughs> um, yeah, so like, I, I do get you though. You know, it's just in general there hasn't been as many, I guess, who've been in comics, and you know, there's it's a smaller list. But I mean, yeah, it's important obviously to have more, you know, representation and more diversity. Devin Grayson yeah, is one I was super happy about. She doesn't do many interviews because she doesn't do obviously uh, current comic work anymore. Um, right. I think she gave me one of the best compliments I had was that she had had a she done a podcast and then it went really poorly and then she like tentatively agreed to do it with me but she was really not sure about it and then when we had it she's like I'm really glad I did this I was really worried this was going to suck um, because I guess she had a really bad interaction with, like with whoever she'd podcasted with a couple weeks earlier she's like this was so much better thank you and I was uh, like I was you know I took that as a great compliment because I'm glad that she at least did it because obviously she was worried about even doing it at that point. Um, so that right. was very nice that she even you know was was willing to do it. It's it's always nice. It's always amazing to me that anyone will talk to us at all. Like because when we're growing Absolutely. up, these these feel like monoliths, these giant people that they would never talk to us. You know, we're just right. these, these peons reading these books. How dare we? <laughs> how dare we ask these you know these giants like Tom DeFalco, Ron Friends, all these people? How dare we ask them to talk to us for a few minutes? Like it just when I first sent out the emails asking the first time I was ever doing interviews, I was paralyzed with fear. Even though the worst that could happen is that they say no, like it doesn't matter. But I was so yeah. paralyzed with fear. Right. No, me too. And like you said, the worst thing that can happen is they say no. One of the people who I'm, tr- I'm currently trying to get is Jerry Ordway, another guy of that Roger Stern era Superman mm-hmm. that was important to my childhood, and and I love a lot of the stuff that they did looking back now. So I'd love to be able to talk to them because I feel it would be so easy. Sometimes there's that hesitation of I want to get someone on the show who's um, 
who's a, you know available person that you like who's available but then you want to you also think like I got to read all of this work that I don't I haven't read before but somebody like a, a Jerry Ordway or a Roger Stern like at the drop of a hat I can pretty much talk to them without having to read a, a whole library's worth of work that I've never been mm-hmm. familiar with before right so that's why I'm really I'd be really excited to talk to them but when you prep to go into an interview with someone like that so how do you prep how do you what, what kind of research do you do how do, how do you guide your conversation like how do you usually go into it I'm most curious how other people attack tackle these types of things um so I'll listen to some of the interviews they've done with somebody else and kind of get a feel of areas that maybe they haven't spoken about too um, in depth. So like I've spoken to J.M. DeMatteis a, a number of times now, who's one of my favorite creators, but I've never done done a whole like Craven's Last Hunt with him because he's always kind of talked about that everywhere. Hmm. So I try to try to dig into some of the things that are well known, but also um, we'll get into more of his uh, the things that he likes to talk about because when you get certain people talking about what they like to talk about things can become more interesting so I'll definitely read their work something that they're currently working on perhaps to you know um, like Fabian Nicieza was doing a webcomic and he suggested that to me so I definitely read that because it was um, well, a commentary on what's happening in the world today so it's kind of a good place to be able to talk about those things but of course you want to ask questions about work that you uh, enjoyed yourself questions that you've always had in your head so I think it depends on the guest Hmm. right for me if it's an artist I find there's a difference between artists and writers Hmm. because with artists I don't know if they have as much insight to give you I've found thus far if they didn't write it, like a writer will really get into the story of it and what they wanted to do with the characters, whereas a whereas a artist gets into more of the nuts and bolts of putting together the story and the scenes mm. instead of the, the characterization of what they were trying to say in the story. Does that make sense? I'm not sure if I'm explaining that right. No, it does. I mean, in, unless the artist is necessarily like doing more of the plotting, like, yeah, I, I get where you're going, that they may not have the same... Well, understanding of where it's even going like they might just have that script whereas the writer might know five issues in advance what he's trying to do yeah yeah exactly like with Ron Friends and Tom DeFalco they were so in tune with the story of let's say a, a Thor with their Thor run they were really working together on that story so there's insights that you can get from Ron that would be different than just somebody who is on the book drawing it for instance mm-hmm. so I find I, I, I gotta try to have different conversation points with different types of creators or people who work in in the industry. So it, it really depends on the on the guest. And then I'll try to do something fun where, uh, like, there's been times with certain artists where I give them like the the this or that sort of thing that I do to mm-hmm. make them decide on things that they love, and they really get into that sort of thing. For sure. So I try to try to think of stuff like that to do. How about you? How do you prep? Um, I, I, I go pretty loose, to be honest. Like, I, I find, I used to, uh, I still occasionally throw, you know, I'll put something on the Marvel Masterworks forum or something saying, you know, I'm interviewing X, do you have any, like, questions you really want to ask this person? Just so I have some extra stuff kind of at the end. I find more often than not, 
Um, I kind of try to trace someone's career, so I kind of go through it. So we start with, you know, obviously how they first got into comics, then how they broke in, and then I kind of try to draw a line forward. So using that, I used to use uh, Comic Book DB, which was like the best website in the world. Uh, then it was bought by someone else, and it's currently out of commission, so I'm really sad about that. I uh, just went out of commission, I guess, in December. So now I use the uh, the Grand Comics database, or uh, comics.org, okay. uh, which is okay. decent. And so you can, you know, put in a creator, and it'll kind of come out with a pretty good... Um, historical or chronological report of everything they've worked on. Now, for some people, you have to be careful because if it's an artist, it might have just been a cover that it's picking up, and it's not actually the interior. Right. So you got to be careful, and you have to kind of go through. But I try to find, you know, the one the runs that they worked on, or the first big project, and or you know, I'll kind of go through them, and I'll, I'll page through the different books, and you know, was there a particular creator that kind of sticks out amongst those? Who should I ask about? I mean, you never know. I mean, like I went into the Roger Stern interview that I did, the first one. I did not know really how I was going to approach it because he's done everything. And he's done so many different characters, but I was kind of like, well, let's see how it goes. And I put out this call for questions, which was gigantic. So I was like, well, I don't know how I'm going to integrate all this and ask some questions. Who knows how much time I'm going to get? So when we started chatting, I think we went almost an hour and a half. And I barely asked him anything because, you know, I was so interested in the story. Like, just the his entry into comics was so interesting. And then he would throw out, a, you know, a thing about, oh, how much Ditko meant to him or how he picked out Ditko, you know, reading a different comic years later. And it was all this stuff. So then I would be like, oh, well, you actually worked with Ditko. So I kind of jumped over, you know, 20 years of material to go to, well, you worked with Ditko at this point. What about that? Then he talks about John Romita Jr., uh, Sr. So then I switched gears and say, okay, well, you worked with him on this project. So that one was probably the, the loosest in terms of I was really kind of jumping everywhere, but it was natural. It was part of the conversation. And obviously it's trying to do a little bit of both. It's trying to have a structure and also kind of go with where the stories are going to lead you. Because if you get a really good story, you want to, you want to follow it. And you want to not be as rigid as having an exact plan. When I was done that, right. fir- that first Roger Stern interview, I remember being so paralyzed that, oh my God, I didn't get to anything. Like, I didn't talk about all this work that's so instrumental, so important, but at the same time, I did. You know what I mean? Like, he'd done so much work. We talked about it a lot, and it was really good stuff, and I really enjoyed it, but I also felt like, oh no, I didn't talk about this, I didn't talk about that, I didn't talk about this. I was slapping myself, but like, the guy worked on everything. He's done... Like, the amount of important stuff Roger Stern has done is incredible. So, I, you know, I really had to cut myself some slack. And when I went into the second interview, it was much more, okay, what I need to hit certain things, but I also still want to go chronologically and see how this flows. And it actually flowed fairly well. Yeah, and, and I think that's the key, right, is you want to make it conversational. My first interviews that I did with uh, some people, my first one actually was me and Martin did it together. It was with Matt Kent. And I was just on a Matt Kent binge reading all of his stuff that I could get my hands on, especially the Valiant stuff. I really loved it. And you you, you start to do an interview where it's like, I may got to make sure I ask this question. I got to make sure I ask that. And you become kind of stuck to a script that it, it doesn't allow the conversation to flow as evenly or as, as naturally as you put it out before. Like when you have a conversation with someone like we are now, we just go into it, and what something I say will make you ask the next question. Something you say will make me like that's the way it should be. Mm-hmm. And when you do that with the creators, you'll you'll get to know them better as opposed to just saying, "So why did you you know change Superman's costume? What were you thinking?" <laughs> All right, so you don't, I want to try to avoid that if I can. Still asking those questions, but getting the the. the Person, the guest on there to feel like they're really a part of the show. For sure. 
I find one of when I when I do talk to creators at Marvel who worked in like the eighties, I'm always I always, I want to know so much about the Jim Shooter era, but I'm always so hesitant because he, he was a polarizing figure and people have very differing opinions on that guy. And so that's yeah. always been interesting is to kind of see, like, I love understanding the behind the scenes. I love knowing all the stuff that was going on. Like, I, more and more what I've been asking people is like, you know, what's your Mark Gruenwald story? Or everyone has one. We all know about this. The, you know, yes. He was such a huge figure at Marvel. And then obviously he died very young in the mid-90s. But, like, if he had been around, Marvel would have been maybe a different place. Like, he... He had a very specific vision for continuity and how he felt about the characters. And so, anyways, he's, and it sounds like the funniest guy in the world because of all the pranks he would pull on people. So, mm-hmm. you know, so I, nowadays when I have people who've worked in that era, I always want to be like, oh, you know, tell me a Mark Grunewald story. Tell me a Jim Shooter story. Like, I, I'm curious about them. Not necessarily trying to... I don't want dirt. That's not what I want. I want... I want to know what was going on, and these were just guys. It's funny, because to us, they're Jim Shooter, Tom DeFalco, but they're just dudes... Going to work, yeah, totally. So, yeah, no, I, I agree with you 100%. When you, like like you said, when you ask them about somebody that they worked with at the time, I remember your uh, Ralph Macchio uh, mm. conversations. You know, he, he wasn't a person who, who necessarily uh, wrote anything that, uh, we, you know, we put in, in the annals of, of the greatest stories of all time, but he worked on those books with those people and specifically with Mark Gruenwald like you said so to hear him tell these stories there's so much insight and things that you can appreciate from a person who was editing a book and working with these people to make you really understand that era like mm-hmm. it's great you're absolutely right so I'm going to ask you a weird question so I'm going to yeah. I'm going to throw out a character or a team and I want you to think okay. about who living would be a guest you'd really want to talk to about that particular property. Whether or not they've written it, or they just you know that they like that property, whatever. I'll just throw out a character, and you tell me who you'd most want to talk to about it. Okay, I like that. Okay. Okay? So let's start with yeah. something relatively easy, and I think I might, I probably know who you'd say, but let's put out Superman, for example. Who would you want to talk to most about Superman? Oh, man. Who would I want to... Mark Wade. Yeah, Mark Wade. More than Roger Stern? Um, <laughs> you know what? With with Superman, there's I got a list. There's Ordway, Jerry Ordway, Roger Stern, Dan Jurgens. Um, those are the and Louis Simonson. That whole era of the the diamond mm-hmm. you know, numbering of Superman. I'd love to talk to all of those folks about about Superman and working on the death of Superman at that time. But I think why I'd say Mark Wade is just because of how much he loves. Superman mm-hmm. or even someone like a Marv Wolfman yeah. I would never think Marv Wolfman's favorite character is Superman but they, they love this character and I would love to get into all of the reasons why they love that character so much because I think it's very it's deeply personal mm-hmm. so I think there'd be a lot to, to take from it okay uh, let's switch gears what about a character like Nightwing Nightwing um, man man maybe Kyle Higgins yeah. Or uh, yeah, he worked on the character for for a good chunk of time, but it was also a, another guy who had expressed that as a kid he really loved Batman the animated series and Dick Grayson. So mm. I'm trying to think of people who also really love the character mm. as well. So mm, how about you? Who would you think of for Dick Grayson? Uh, well, I've talked to two of them already, so um, I'm not sure. Uh, Chuck Dixon would be one, obviously. 
Um, yeah. And I've already talked to him about about Nightwing. And same thing with Devin Grayson is that she really right. loves Dick Grayson and had a lot of you know she just really loved the character. And so um, I, I mean I guess I'm kind of cheating because I've already talked to those two. So I guess I could probably say Kyle Higgins without slighting those two. Yeah, maybe maybe like a, even Tom King or Tim Seeley who worked together on on the Grayson uh, uh, book. And then Tim Seeley went on to, to write Nightwing after. So there'd be some, I think, some very interesting insights there. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what about the Justice League? Any per, any Justice permutation? League. So I've, I've spoken to uh, James DeMatteis about Justice League a little bit. Mm-hmm. I know that, uh, I'm trying to think, any permutation. <sighs> Man, that's a tough one. I don't know. Uh, again, maybe that one... For that one, I might on my list would put uh, Scott Snyder right now just to know what the heck he was thinking, <laughs> working on it because I, I I enjoyed it, but then I also was like, what the hell's going on, man? Um, so I'd have questions that I'd like answer. So maybe Scott Snyder, but um, I don't know. It, it, there's so many of them. I guess Grant Morrison too, of course. That that's a big one. Yeah. How about you? Uh, I think. Maybe Jerry Conway. Um, yeah, I was thinking of him too. I think his run is not given maybe the appreciation it deserves, um, and it's kind of a weird formative period for the team too. But um, yeah, I'd probably go with Jerry Conway. I think it's you know I, I think there'd be a lot of meat there uh, in terms of and, and just to hear insights as to you know what it was like to be even be doing the JLA at that point in time. I mean, it's I think it's very different now. I feel like anyone after Grant Morrison, it's different. Because uh, Grant Morrison kind of redefined the Justice League or the JLA, whatever you want to call them, uh, with the kind of the... I mean, the Big Seven had always, always kind of been an idea, but I think he codified it in a way that hadn't been done previously uh, and really brought it back to that kind of core concept. Um, yeah. And I guess another one would be Mark Way, just to talk more about JLA Year One. Yeah. yeah like I, I, only, I didn't say Mark Wade because I've said him a bunch of times already so <laughs> but he, he he would definitely be one too that comes to mind because he did a JLA run that like the, the Tower of Babel which is mm-hmm. really great and then the stuff he did with Brian Hitch which you would think would be phenomenal just missed the mark and then he did JLA year one with uh, Barry Kitson and, and Augustine which was great like I loved it so uh, yeah, he'd definitely be another guy. It's funny, with with Mark Wade. every time I have him on the show, I know I only have 20, 25 minutes, so every time it's for like a different project. Um, so I feel like eventually I'll get to that kind of stuff. Like the first time we talked about Ruse, which again, it was a costume series that not a lot of people even remember from like 17 years ago. And then the second time we talked about, uh, you know, his work on Archie 1941 and Archie 1955, which is again, right. kind of a niche project. And then the third time we finally talked about Marvel and we talked about the official uh, history of the Marvel Universe. Um, or sorry, I think it's just called the history of the Marvel Universe. And actually I did, I did reach out to him and was like, oh, you know, can you come back? I'd love to just talk about Kazar. Because we briefly mentioned it in the last episode, and you know he was like, "Oh, Kazar, I don't know," and I was like, "No, no, I, I really enjoy Kazar." So I, he was like, "Oh, you know, hit, hit me in the hit me in the the fall. Maybe I'll come back." I'm like, "Awesome! I'd love to talk about Kazar because for him, you know, he's 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 written everything and every, every yeah. character, but I." I feel even more so that that feeling of wanting to tap into getting to him to talk about something he doesn't usually talk about as a way of bringing him in. 
Um, yes, because he's t- uh, you know he's talked about all these thing- other things so often, uh, those other big projects. But I don't feel like he's talked about a lot of this other stuff that often. Uh, like when was the last time anyone's really gone deep into depth with him on his Kazar run? Probably never. Um, right. So that kind of stuff is kind of like what I try to do with my interviews, and like you do as well, trying to find that kind of project that maybe not a lot of people ask them about that you can really get them to speak about because they never get talked about that you know as with mark wade he always gets asked about certain projects like superman birthright or even his the tower of babel like he's done so many influential things and important things but he's also probably talked about them to death whereas exactly. kazar is a rock that maybe he'd rather not always be unturned but at least it hasn't often been unturned right yeah exactly well, i made that mistake with fabian and Chiesa. not a mistake but uh, I, I wanted to talk to him about his uh, Captain America uh, story that he did um, now that, with Kevin McGuire. Mm. I mean, great artist, great writer, uh, a really good story that oftentimes gets forgotten that it, it was a good story that you can see things being pulled from it for the films. And when I brought it up, I'm like, oh, let's talk about something that was that you enjoyed working on. He's like, oh, man, that was a nightmare. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah, but but he the, the story itself was some like he enjoyed the story, but the process of, of putting it all together was much harder than you know. Like you said, when when you talk to Mark Wade about maybe a project that he's like, oh, you really want to talk about that one? Well, I actually, yeah, I do because I liked it. So it's good to to work to. to you know, get into those topics that they might not ever be asked about. Yeah, a number of years ago, I remember I um, I tweeted at Warren Ellis to try and get his attention to come on the show, and and I think I got something back, like basically, like what do you want to talk about? And I was like, I'm gonna go super like deep cut and really impress him that I want to talk about something that no one ever asked him about. And so I did, and he was like, Oh, I don't want to talk about that. And I'm like, No. <laughs> yeah, it could backfire. Well, you never know. I mean, it, and it wasn't just me fishing. Like it was something like I legitimately really enjoyed when it was coming out. But I guess he just not have the same level of feeling for it. So I remember, and I don't think he ever tweeted that. You know, didn't respond to any other tweets after that. And I was like, oh man, did I miss my one Warren Ellis shot on this? Yeah, that's too bad. Yeah, it happens. <laughs> it happens. Yeah, like you said, the worst thing that can happen is they say no or they don't respond. For sure. So let's let's switch to Marvel for a second. So uh, what about okay. what about uh, the Fantastic Four? Uh, again, I don't want to happen to say Mark Wade, but let's go somewhere else. Um, <laughs> I'm surprised you haven't said John Byrne. Is it just because John Byrne doesn't talk to anybody? I think that's what it is. Like John Byrne would be my one of my number one bucket list, but I, I would be one scared to catch him in a bad mood. Because apparently he never liked working on Superman from the video that you sent me recently, which breaks my heart. Because I, I love his Superman. Like it's that is my version of Superman that I just love. So to hear him be like, I would never have done it. I'm like, oh. That was so, a, a, a quick digression. So that was what Sci-Fi Wire or whatever did an interview with with them, um, John Byrne, and at the end they're like, you know, would you do it again, kind of thing. And he's like, no. And it was like that's heartbreaking. Like. You know, totally. considering how influential that was and what it means to so many people in the era that came after it because of the groundwork he laid and, you know, how it seemed like he, it was like this dream project. And then to hear that, like, if he could do it all over again, he wouldn't. That's that was and it was, it was right at the end of the interview. As I said, like the whole thing is going great. And then they go to that very end. And I'm like, what the saddest note to leave this John Byrne interview off on? Right. Exactly. Heartbreaking. That, that's 
totally. So that's why I never really bring them up because I just feel like it's not. That's the real unicorn of of comic book interviews, right? Is John Byrne. But yeah, Fantastic Four for sure, John Byrne. And um, uh, who who did a run in the Jonathan Hickman? Yeah, you know him him as well because he he laid down track work that you look back on now. It's one of maybe top three. Top top three to top four Fantastic Four runs, right? Yeah, it's way up there. So I'd love to talk to somebody like him who really sees the the family and and has these grandiose, expansive stories of where you start and where he knows he wants to take it. But how about you? Uh, mine's a weird choice. Uh, Chris Claremont. Uh, he wrote um, a, a relatively short run of the Fantastic Four during the Heroes Return era. Um, which you know had some really great artwork, artwork by Salvador Larocca. I actually recently sent an email to whatever contact information I had previously, which you know was from when I first had him on the show five years ago. Um, which is crazy. That was one of my first interviews. Was Chris Claremont? What was I thinking? <laughs> I feel like I should have you know built up to that one. But um, but I'd love to talk to him about it because partially because it's not X Men. You know, like he's been asked mm-hmm. every single question under the sun about X Men, but. I don't think he's been asked every question about the Fantastic Four. Um, so I'd just be curious, you know, what he'd think of, what his answers would be, and, and what his impressions and what his intentions were. Um, again, that's a little bit less about his love of the characters and more about, you know, his work and what his work meant or what he was trying to do. Um, but again, it, it's from a period where I don't remember a lot of fan journalism about, like, obviously Wizard was around, but I don't remember any Wizard comics really talking about, you know, Chris Claremont on, on Fantastic Four. Maybe I'm wrong, but I just, man, maybe I was too young to really notice it, and that's probably more likely, but I just don't remember anything about it. So I'm just curious, you know, what his thought processes were, because I'm sure there's interviews out there, but I've never found them about him talking about that period. So yeah. that would be one I would be very curious about. Yeah, no, that's true. That, that's a very good uh, good pick, because you don't associate him with that character, but uh, he, he did work on it, and it was at a time where people were once again interested in what Marvel was going to be doing, right? Like, that was the whole Heroes Reborn thing, and it's kind of the forgotten, or Heroes Return. Mm-hmm. It's the kind of forgotten Heroes Return series. Um, for Fantastic Four, even a Walt, uh, Walt Simonson would be interesting. Oh, yeah. Because he did a, he did a run that people enjoyed and, and really respected, but... You don't hear him talk about that quite as often. No. You, know, you always think of him as uh, with Thor. And the reason why Wade would be interesting was because he wasn't a Fantastic Four guy when he got on the book. Hmm. He always says so. That would kind of be an interesting thing to talk about of why he, he took on the challenge for a team that he didn't have a real connection to. But Which yeah, is, maybe Walt Simonson. It's fascinating too because that first issue of his Fantastic Four run is. Fantastic! Well, it is suitably fantastic. Like it's such a great done in one. This is the Fantastic Four. Let's you know, like it, if you'd never read a Fantastic Four issue before, you could read their first issue, and it doesn't feel like you're going to miss anything. And even that first, you know, years worth of stories, they were telling shorter stories. It was like a one-off here, three issue arc here. Even like their big one that they built up to, which was unthinkable, was maybe four or five parts. Like you know, he, every, there was a very judicious use of storytelling that you got a lot, but they didn't string it along yeah no it's true that's a good way to put it yeah it was a really great run I mean it's interesting I mean a lot of that I mean not a lot of it obviously it's Mark Wade being you know the smart guy that he is and Waringo being the amazing penciler he was but you can't forget you know Tom Brevoort you know in the background 
100%. So many of those books of, of that time where Tom Brevoor was, was, you know, the mastermind of putting the right teams together for those books, for sure. So what about what about a team like the Avengers? Who would be your uh, your creator? Man, it would have to be Kurt Busiek for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, just between him and Roger Stern and what they did even with the Avengers Forever, like one of those two guys would be really interesting to talk to. Um, because I feel it was the last real superhero Avengers that that you had. Because after that, of course, the Jeff Johns run, he would be interesting to talk to, actually. Because it's the one thing that, with Marvel, he's kind of associated with. And it yeah. was good. Mm-hmm. So that, that would be interesting to get him to talk about the other company that he worked for for a little bit. But Kurt Busiek, yeah, I, I just think, I don't know, there's something really special about his Avengers work. It's weird if you think about people. If people, if there are new readers going into the industry now, that in five or you know, or five, seven, eight years from now, when again there's still new people getting in, there people. There will be people who buying DC comics by Brian Michael Bendis, and who will go, "What? He was at Marvel?" Right. Yeah. Like it'll yeah. seem weird. Like, what do you mean he was at Marvel? Right. Yeah. It's it was it's kind of like I guess. Um when John, for me, John Byrne, I always associated him with Superman because that was my first memory of this guy. And, and seeing like, wait a second, all of that important X Men stuff was he, he? It was him that worked with Claremont. Like he really put it into perspective how much groundwork he laid at Marvel before he even touched the DC character. For sure. All right, let's let's go a solo character. If you had to talk to one creator on Spider Man, who would it be? That you haven't already talked to. I mean, you've talked to a bunch already. Mm-hmm, I have. Again, probably Roger Stern. Mm. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd be as excited to talk to him about Spider-Man as I would be about uh, Superman. Because it was his run reading that era of the Hobgoblin and, and before Peter got married, just before the, Tom and, and Ron got on the book that made me realize how much I really like I, I love Spider-Man but that was like I really loved that that run that he did with John Romita Jr. just just so good but I'm trying to think there's so many guys that I mean Dan Slott of course was 10 years on that book so there's so much to talk to him about um, and then unfortunately some people are, are no longer with us who worked on on those books but I was thinking of Len Wein for a while who had worked on on Spider-Man right after Jerry Conway and he did some cool stuff I always would have loved to talk to him but yeah probably Roger Stern for sure how about you? Um, I mean again I'm, I'm lucky enough that I've talked to Roger Stern already I've talked to Tom DeFalco mm-hmm. um, I've talked to a lot of people like Howard Mackey I, I, I think because I'd be the most interested in the behind the scenes and the thought process mm-hmm. it would be JMS um, yes, yes, yes. Because that's a big one. Yes. I mean, like, like I've been lucky enough. Like when I first really started buying Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man, uh, Tom LaFalco was writing it, so I've already had a chance to talk to him about that. Um, yes, you know, and, and after he left, you had the rebooted Amazing Spider-Man. You had Howard Mackey on it again. I've talked to him, but then I then then it gets into this this era where you have JMS, and I'm, you know, I'm just so fascinated by. The behind the scenes, and I don't know how much he would ever say, but I'd be so curious right. about what was going on 
and like how much yes I, I imagine they gave him a lot of wiggle room at the beginning because again it was in that era where they were getting people from Hollywood to write comics and this was a big deal you were getting you know Joss Whedon was being wooed over by Marvel you had Kevin Smith a few years earlier now you got JMS yes. like you were getting these big time guys technically Jeff Loeb too right he's a movie writer yep. you're getting all these people to write comics this is a big marquee event that you're getting these people on and he didn't just come on for a storyline he was on there for a long time um, yes. so I'm curious to find out how much carte blanche he had and you know and what that was like and then and how that changed because obviously editorial oversight started to change and fingerprints started showing up that were not his so I'd be curious to talk to him about that yes that's a good point you know who who now that you you said something that made something go off in my head somebody who I would is on my bucket list who I'd love to talk to about a bunch of stuff but have some specific Spider-Man questions would be uh, Christopher Priest mm. or Jim Owsley because oh, yeah. he's, he's worked on, as an editor on that book during uh, a key moment in history and I would just love to get a little bit of his take on things so that's one where I would actually be intimidated and kind of nervous about like I mean he's put blog posts about it admitting that he made mistakes but I'd be so hesitant about kind of going near that I don't know why but I'd just be I'd be very nervous about offending but also so curious about the circumstances yeah that's that's the thing the curiosity of it yeah Another one that, I mean, is, is an obvious one. We're kind of, we've, we've talked more about writers, obviously, but, you know, talking to JR, JR would be fascinating because, you know, the guy That's was true. associated with Spider-Man in the 80s and then again in, still in the 90s and then also in the 2000s. Like, he's had such a connection with Spider-Man as a character uh, and obviously his family connection is a huge one, exactly. too. Exactly. So, like, it'd be, yeah. it'd be really interesting because he doesn't do a lot of interviews. Like, you don't, like... I, I know what his voice sounds like because one of my favorite mm-hmm. interviews they ever did with him was um, on the Daredevil DVD back in like 2003, and it was it was just about Daredevil, and um, but it was just always really fascinating. In fact, I don't know if you've ever watched the interview, but uh, he describes his style, and he says, "My style is the deadline style. It's whatever it takes to get the deadline done." <laughs> And uh, yeah. which it, it's just always stuck with me. Like I first saw that 17 years ago, and when I look at J- Jr.'s artwork, I'm always thinking that this is where the deadline was, uh, which is maybe terrible. But I mean, he kind of professed it. And even when I was talking to Ian Churchill a couple of weeks ago, he was he said the same type of thing was kind of true of him at some at certain points of his career. Depending on the deadline, that was his style. Yeah, no, that that's such an interesting insight. That is a good person to pick. Actually, I would probably want to talk to him about Spider-Man because he is my personal favorite Spider-Man artist because of the 80s, the 90s, and even what he did in the 2000s. Like He's just somebody I associate with that character. Yeah, that's a good pick. And yet, it's so interesting to look at the different eras that he's penciled that his interpretation and his artwork has changed as well. So seeing how he picks up that character in different eras is interesting. But again, I'm curious how much of that is time and how much of that is an evolution of style. All right, I feel like I had to narrow it down and bring us to a close. Um, I'll throw out X-Men as a, as a kind of a broad-based one. Is it Claremont? I mean, it, it, you'd be hard-pressed to not talk to him because 10 years or more uh, and all of the, the branches of X-Men that came out of that. But maybe, maybe I would talk to... Um, Louise Simonson. Hmm. Let's go with. Because she was she was very closely associated with those books during that time and was writing X Factor as well as was she also on New Mutants. She was for a bit. 
yeah, so, you know, there's certain events where you realize, like when I was reading Inferno and I said this to you and, and on my own podcast, like she really carried the weight of a lot of that event. Mm. Claremont did the, the uncanny books for sure, which were, you know, very important stories, but there was so much heavy lifting that she did during that time, as well as editing it for a little bit or for a while during key storylines. So I'd love to be able to talk to her about that. Yeah. Maybe her. Not not quite the most. But then again, there's another guy you can go to, like, could say a, a John Romita Jr., and, and talk to him about his run on X-Men. So ah, there's a lot. There's a lot of people. Yeah. I think it was my absolute bucket list, and it didn't, like, like I know it would never happen, but I'd be just, mm-hmm. I'd just be interested to hear him talk about it, would be Jim Lee, because... I mean, he wasn't even on the book a long time, but his shadow was so long and lasted so long, and like, and his art was so influential, and again, inspired the television series that because it was hot, so they wanted the television series to look like it, and that was a yeah. huge formative thing for me as well. So I think that would be the one of the the ones I'd be fascinated to talk to, even though it's such a small slice of his career. But you know, every, for years, people were would come on X Men just trying to do their Jim Lee. Yeah, that's 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 a good point. Because even when I was reading back, I, I did my big X Men uh, deep dive last year, and when I got to the Jim Lee stuff, where he got onto the book and then was more regular as an artist on Uncanny, they weren't the best X Men stories. They looked fantastic, but it wasn't the the, the adjectiveless X Men yet. No, which which kind of becomes his, you know what he's known for all of the posters and the calendars and this but like you said it wasn't the longest run but it's kind of that thing that everybody holds as the the standard for what people wanted to do after him you know so yeah that would be interesting to talk to him about that yeah he loved those characters he really loved Wolverine and was a big fan of, of Burn was his big inspiration growing up so yeah that's a good pick uh, I'm going to give you uh, Daredevil to, and, and try not to say uh, Mark Wade. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wouldn't pick Mark Wade for Daredevil. Um, but I guess there'd be interesting reasons to pick him. Um, man, I guess I guess Bendis Bendis would be a good pick. Uh, but it, does does that does the person have had to? Have, worked on them no not at all that's I the mean, other thing too it could be as I said it could be anyone I'm just like if you could only talk to one person about this character I mean we would obviously gravitate more towards a character who's talked about who's worked on them right because we have an idea of what to talk to them about or what they would talk, kind of say or we're curious about you know certain things about what they worked on but yeah it doesn't have to be you know what I think everybody who's worked on the character like you think of Miller Bendis Brubaker and and then of course their artists were <clears throat> Nascenti, Nascenti, Nascenti. Yeah, all of those people were were like they have the, uh, a stamp on there. But you know, I would I would talk to uh, Kevin Smith. I mean, that's I, I would I'll say that that's, that's not exactly a, a dark horse uh, choice. It's not. <laughs> it's not a dark horse choice. But I think because it was short, but at a time that was impactful, and there was a he would he would I think have a lot to say about it hmm. he would he would of course be very uh, loquacious talking about just anything but 
I don't know. Who who else would you pick that wouldn't be the most obvious, right? Well, of course you want to talk to Bendis. Well, of course you want to talk well, to Frank if you, Miller. If you want to go with not obvious, I go with Ben Affleck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> That'd be a very interesting conversation. I mean, if you want to go with, you know, again, a dark horse choice, it would be Ben Affleck or Charlie Cox. I mean, that would be an mm-hmm. interesting one. Um if a super out of nowhere would be Wilson Bethel, uh, he played Bullseye in the uh, third season of Daredevil. Uh, I've, I'm just a fan of him as an actor, and so I would love to chat with him. No reason. <laughs> yeah, just like that guy. Yeah, no, it's it's. I guess all the people who have worked on that's a character who, when he has a good run, it's one of the greatest books like on a shelf, right? Daredevil oh, sure. doesn't ha- he doesn't have that same thing as, as Spider Man does, but what you do collective daredevil is like essential reading so interesting yeah i mean i'm actually in the middle of rereading um andesenti's run for the epic marvel podcast um okay because we've been recording episodes of that so we've been going through those epic collections so you know it's nice to kind of it's interesting there's so much politics in there um it gets a little thick sometimes but it's probably the most political daredevil's ever been um but it's it's a very interesting run i don't know if you've ever read it I've never read any Anosenti Daredevil. Oh I know God. it's sheesh. Yeah, no, I, I've never. That was the part that I skipped over. That's too bad. I mean, because she's... I always hear mixed things about it, right? There's people who really, really love it and hold it in high regard, and then it just doesn't, for some, doesn't live up to the high water mark that was Miller. Yeah, it, it's right? very, it's very What's strange the... because I mean, she has the hardest work possible of, you know, the way Born Again ends. It could kind of be the end of Daredevil as a character. Like the character could just, could just mm-hmm. have been done, and yet someone has to pick it up and develop mm-hmm. new stories. And she didn't do it right away, but I think there was a couple of fill-ins first, and then she took over. And she had, you know, a hard task of kind of rebuilding this. And how do you rebuild this character who's just been stripped apart? And she figured out a pretty good way of doing it, of you know, giving him a new supporting cast that made sense, uh, bringing in new villains. Uh, J.R. J.R. was her artist, which I would say at times is really good and at times is a mess uh, because you know she she goes to some crazy weird places. Like it starts off super, you know, uh, street level with Typhoid Mary being the brand new kind of femme fatale, which was a very kind of eighties character in, in some respects, um, and then it becomes a story about that involves Inhumans and Mephisto and like weird crazy shit um but it's but it's always it's always interesting it's always definitely challenging your perceptions and then the run right after her uh by DG Chichester um started off with like the I would call the thematic thematic sequel to Born Again called Last Rites which is one of my favorite Daredevil stories it's really where Kingpin finally gets his comeuppance for everything that happened in Born Again and uh, and then after that, it, you know, it becomes a very '90s book. It leads into Daredevil in his armored costume and all sorts of weirdness. But um, the beginning of Chichester's run is something I would heartily, you know, recommend to anybody. Yeah. So, so where would you start if you were to recommend somebody to pick up the Anosenti era of Daredevil? Where would you? Suggest? Uh, I'd pick up the uh, Touch of Typhoid uh, Epic Collection. It's probably the best place. Technically, it's not where her run starts. It starts a few issues before, but you know it, it gives you enough of what you need. Um, and it, you know you start off with a an, an issue that's called uh, Merry Christmas Kingpin, um, but it sets up basically like the first like that year's worth of stories about you know Kingpin wants to rip apart Murdoch. He took everything from him, and it wasn't enough. So he decides he's gonna he's gonna take out his heart. And so the way to do that, he's going to enlist this new woman, Typhoid Mary, to you know go to his heart and and destroy him, and that's his plan. And that's probably a good place to start. 
Mm. Okay. Okay, I'll keep an eye out for that then. I mean, good luck finding it. I'm pretty sure it's out of print, but... <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we got some good used bookstores that we can sometimes come across this stuff in Toronto. This is true. All right, last one, I think. Let's see. Um, <laughs> and this one feels obvious, but maybe not. Maybe there's maybe there's a dark horse candidate in your head. Um, but if you could talk to anyone about The Incredible Hulk. Mm. I'm going to say Mark Wade again. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> just <laughs> I mean, kidding. you could. He did some great stuff. No. He did. No, he did. Um, you know, maybe Greg Pak, because I really enjoy, I really love the story that he did with Planet Hulk. So I maybe talk to him. I know Peter David is is the the obvious choice. Um, who else? Who else did some some you know really interesting? Man, I don't. Know. I'm as as you mentioned all of these characters. There's. Uh, one theme for like Daredevil, Hulk, Spider-Man, and I'm thinking of Jeff Loeb doing all of those color series. So oh, yeah. I feel maybe there'd be something to talk about to him about going to the beginning of a lot of those characters and digging deep into the the beginning mythology. So maybe maybe a Jeff Loeb would be interesting to talk to. Hmm. But uh, how about you? Who would you pick for for the Hulk? Um, you know, I, I I've I've had the opportunity already, but I think I'd almost. I'd want to talk to Al Ewing even more, like, like really super in-depth, because, I mean, if you read his Immortal Hulk, like, he loves the Hulk. He loves every facet of the Hulk, and he's unturned every facet he can get his hands on, and he's doing crazy things with it. And I think that might be the one, even though I've technically already talked to him, there's just, I think I could keep, keep, keep talking to him and just keep listening to him. Like, I talked to uh, Jim Zub recently, and part of the conversation was just me being like, what was it like being in the room when Al Ewing came up with Immortal Hulk? And they were like, yeah, he knew it right from there. Like, like this guy had this plan. And so, like, I, it was a different... In, I was interviewing someone else, but even then, we were just talking about Al Ewing. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, can I do a shameless plug before we finish up? Oh, I, I would be upset if you didn't. Okay, so speaking of the Hulk, the episode I was supposed to record uh, this past week, which I've rescheduled for... It'll be recorded on the Wednesday after this episode is posted. Okay. I'm going to be doing a Top 5 Hulk uh, podcast with Casey Parsons and Sam Noir. Nice. Uh, Sam Noir actually reached out to me to want to do a Top 5 Hulk stories. So it's actually funny we end up on the Hulk, and that's going to be my next episode theme. How, what has it been like doing the research for that? I haven't been doing any research for it because I'm going to let them really be the one because they love the Hulk so much so I want them to kind of tell me which Hulk to look out for which stories mean a lot to them it mm. won't be so much of my top five but theirs because I, I haven't read nearly I've read the Hulk but not nearly enough to give it a really good top five like I wouldn't be doing it justice if I tried to chime in that way I did a top five Hulk and I can't remember what was on my list <laughs> yeah I mean I've read the the I don't know how many years it would have consisted of, but when uh, Wade to the Jerry Duggan run, I read all of that off of your recommendation, and I really enjoyed it all. Uh, portions of Peter David, of course, uh, Planet Hulk, um, but I, I, you know, there's so many chunks of the Hulk that I haven't read, so it wouldn't be fair for me to kind of weigh in that way. I don't think. I feel like I have to listen to my own episode again because apparently I recorded mine February 2013 so I'm pretty sure a lot of things have happened in seven years 
yeah, I'm going to listen to that now and just take whatever you listed and <laughs> use it. <laughs> I find those are, I do find those to be stressful types of things, especially because there's now like what, 60 something or like 50, 60 years worth of, of uh, comics to talk about. And I always feel like, you know, mm-hmm. like I always want to go retro. Like I almost don't want to, I try to lean to maybe too heavily sometimes into going kind of classic, and sometimes I snub out the more recent stuff. But sometimes when I do the top five, at least in the past, when I used to do them with my uh, with my friends, they seem to always have the more modern stuff. So I used to go like, oh well, someone has to be representing the classic stuff here. Yeah, and and it kind of it's almost like you kind of want to flex your comic book knowledge by being like, I know everyone's going to say Al Ewing because you know it's the hottest comic right now, and it should be, but then. Like, but it, that's just too easy. Like, let me really show that I've read this character to do it justice, right? There's that part of us, I think, that wants to also, like you said, pay respect to the to the history of it. Like, For really sure. show your wares, kind of thing. Well, I think I think you put the uh, nailed it on the head, though. We just want to show off. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to put it that way, but we just want to show off. It's true. <laughs> I mean, even in the, if you really think about it, at the at the core of it, I mean, when we interview people and we talk, we want to, you know. To get them to talk about something that they don't usually talk about, we're also trying to impress them that we know that thing. Yeah, yeah but it's also a sign of respect, right? Oh, for it's sure. also a sign. It's also a sign to be like, I know about that. You may not think that I noticed it or we cared, but we did, and it was good. All right. Well, yeah. I, I guess that's a pretty good spot. That now I'm excited for that. Well, two things. First of all, I'm, I'm excited to listen to that episode about the top five Hulk stories. But part of me is like, when do I get invited for a top five something? <laughs> You're always on my top five. My chatting with Chapmans are always top fives. I guess it hasn't felt like a formal top five favorite blah, blah, blah. Oh, come on. You know they have been. Top five favorite events. Okay, uh, all right. I guess we have. <laughs> we've done. We've done a number of them. <laughs> but they're always called chatting with Chapmans. That's the thing. So okay. if you want to hear more about Adam Chapman... <laughs> Come to the Cave of Solitude sometimes, and there's a bunch of episodes with him there. God, you know, as if the 800 episodes of this isn't enough, plus my appearances on the Epic Marvel podcast, plus my episodes on yours. Good God. You're at a thousand. You're just, you're already, just pack it up. You're good. That's the thing, right? Like, I, you know, I've joked about this before, but I've had a lot of existential, que- you know, questions this year about whether or not I was going to continue. And I've joked that, you know, once um, Roger Stern said he'd come back, that I was like, well, got to keep going. Um, but like you know, eight hundred for me was a turning point because I was like, do I, do I stop? Is it time to you know? I had a good run, I enjoyed it, I got to talk to a lot of great creators. Is it time to end? And then I was like, I'm not quite done yet. But then once I get the nine hundred, you can't stop. You got to go to a thousand. So I feel like this episode was me basically making an agreement with myself that there's probably two years left. Hey man, you you go as long as you're enjoying it. That's what I say. As long as you've got something you want to talk about, you keep doing it. Don't worry about the numbers. It's funny because I feel like part of me is like, you know, and I think you have this too, is that sometimes, you know, you want to, you, you stress because you're like, oh, I don't really have an episode. i got to put an episode together. Like I obviously have always tried to have two episodes a week, which is kind of crazy, I know. And then part of me is like, you know, it'd be nice to not have to worry about that anymore. But part of me would be like, I got nowhere to talk anymore. <laughs> you know, I, 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 would well, go to, I would go to a movie and I'd be like, no one cares what I think. And I'm, I got nowhere to, no one to talk to about it. <laughs> Well, you could always come to, to my show. Uh, you're always welcome. I mean, you say that now, but in two when years, the, it'll, the, it'll, I'll suddenly be on every episode. Hey, man, it, I'm, I'm up for any sort of transformation of the show. I, I wanted to do, like I said in the beginning, I wanted it to be me and a partner doing a podcast. So if that's what it becomes once the comic shenanigans is over, even if it's a once a week thing, 
I know you're you're two you're two times a week. You're kind of a, a nutcase, but <laughs> <laughs> you'd be more than welcome to podcast with me. Well, I mean, now I have evidence. So in two years, when you're like, I don't know, man, I'm like, um, I'm pretty sure you said the door was open. <laughs> all the time, all the time. <laughs> Well, Eric, again, thank you so much for coming back to uh, celebrate the milestone. It's funny, your first appearance on my show was episode 600. You were on episode 700. So just like Dan Gavazdan, you are a centennial treat. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it, man. And all the best with uh, everything, podcasting, family. You keep going, dude. Thank you so much to you as well. All right, man. Curtis, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. Somehow this is your first time. That is just, that, that blows my mind. You've been on my podcast so many times, Adam, but I'm happy to be here now. It's a little embarrassing, actually. I'm like, how did this happen? <laughs> I don't know. But I've been a long-time listener as well, and I uh, totally enjoy it. So, yeah, glad to be here for 800 episodes. Wow. Yeah, it's a little nuts. I mean, I mean, you. how many episodes are you up to now of the Epic Marvel Podcast? I haven't really counted... It's got to be around 250 or something like that. It's actually not nearly as impressive as yours. Well, I mean, it's still, that's still a lot of... I mean, like, how long have you been running it? Um, maybe three years now? Three, it, three or four? It's only three? I actually thought it was, like, five. <laughs> maybe. I, I'd have to go back and check. I really don't remember. Now, what what kind of made you decide that I'm gonna you know I'm gonna, I, I like these epic collections this this new format that's coming out not only am I gonna buy most of them but I'm actually gonna dedicate a podcast to this line what made you decide to do that? Well, I have been a comic fan for you know majority of my life, and around the um, you know there's that story the Straczynski story sins path or whatever it's called oh yeah um, that made me stop collecting superhero comics oh wow I yeah I mean I was on the fence I had dropped most of my titles by that point and, by, and when that story came on it's like I was really holding on to Spider-Man as one of my last I've always loved Spider-Man one of my last comics and that one was like okay I guess I don't need to read this anymore and I should have <laughs> just picked it up after that story because you know the creative team changes or whatever I, I just stopped and I started exploring many different other aspects of the of comics um you know the autobiographical comics or japanese comics or the european stuff donald duck and you know all this and loving it i absolutely loved it and that's when i got into recording podcasts as well and um and i started a podcast it's no longer running where i would just talk about random comics that i've been reading usually they weren't superheroes um i would pick you know, a, a comic from like you know Scott Pilgrim or Where the Wind Blows by Raymond Ming. So, Puyang, uh, I don't know, whatever. You know, there's just um, all of these different aspects of comics that I wanted to talk about with people. None of my friends would do it, so I had to get the internet to talk to me about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, but then the Epic Collection came out, and like this is the stuff that I love to read. I love. The, this, these eras of Marvel, the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. That's and, and so the the idea of being able to read all of the issues from the very beginning to the period where I pretty much kind of just start stopped reading anyway was very um, appealing to me. I tried to collect all of Fantastic Four, and I have almost every issue except for you know I have about issue number 80 to present. Oh, wow, and then. 
and then uh, a smattering of issues before that because that's when they kind of get really pricey. Um, but if the Epic Collections are going to do this all for me, then I'm all on board. So I jumped in, and then at that time, the podcast that I had before was uh, not gaining really any traction because it was so scattershot with my, my selections. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, you know what? In order to actually make me read these epic collections that I'm going to keep on buying, I'm going to do a podcast where I have to talk about them, and that's going to make me read them all. And so that's actually what's happened. Um, they're going to come out faster than I could possibly hope to to podcast about them, but but I'm reading them on a very steady basis now. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting too because I mean, at the beginning, like I I think. I first kind of encountered you on the Marvel Masterworks forum long before you yeah. created a very thriving community of your own on Facebook. And how, what has yeah. it been like to kind of watch that blossom and really become its own thing? That's been absolutely thrilling. I yeah, there was just this really long thread talking about epic collections on the Marvel Masterworks forum, which I love to do. That's kind of the only reason I went on there was to find other people that liked Marvel. Like the epic collections, mm-hmm. and a lot of the co-hosts on my own podcast are from that forum. That's where I solicited uh, help for the very first time, and a lot of people came out of the woodwork to say, "Hey, I'd love to, to do some episodes with you." That's how I met you, mm-hmm. and um, and then yeah, they shut down that thread, and there was a lot of kind of um, a little bit of bitterness and resentment toward the mods who shut that down because of the off people were going off topic or whatever. I don't even remember what the real reasons were. But I started that group up on Facebook specifically about Epic Collections. And a bunch of people from the Marvel Masterworks forum kind of helped me launch it by being uh, um, by posting a lot and being engaging in the conversation. And uh, that was about a year and a half ago. And it's grown to over a thousand people now. Wow. And there are so many people who who just talk about these Epic Collections. I love it. It's There's just so much great conversation Everybody on there is equally excited about this line of comics and talking about comics and and just sharing their love for the books that they're collecting and uh, and it's just a I really enjoy it. It actually takes up a lot of my day because <laughs> I've pledged when I started it. I pledged to myself um, I'm going to comment on every single post because I want people to know who I am, but I also want to be a good example of what kind of of conversation and what kind of comments I want to be on this, uh, on, on, you know, on, uh, in, in the group, in the conversation. So if I'm going to lead by example, I need to be in there conversing with everybody on a regular basis. But now that there's like a thousand people posting, I mean, not, not all thousand people are posting, but there's a lot of people that post a lot of things all day, every day. And I'm still trying to comment on all of them so that I can be a part of all of this conversation. And it's just wonderful. Absolutely. It's phenomenal. Again, to see it take off. I mean, obviously, I was there at the beginning, not just of your podcast, because I was, you know, one of those original people kind of volunteering to be part of it, but also seeing that community grow has been really something special. And again, it's just people who love a format. And it's, it's, it was so interesting about it is it's not about a character. It's about every character. It's about the Marvel Universe. It's about, you know, a specific line. And I'm curious. Did Marvel Masterworks themselves never intrigue you, or is it just the price point was too high? Because I mean, obviously, considering that you know you work in reproductions and and, and some such, that you think that you would kind of gravitate towards the more premium uh, version of a, a lot of this material. Marvel Masterworks absolutely did um, entice me. It was very very fascinating. I 
got the um, the very first Fantastic Four Marvel Masterworks sometime in the mid-90s. I actually gave it to my brother as a birthday present because he's a Fantastic Four He's a huge Fantastic Four fan. And seeing that book made me want to track down the others, but in the early 90s when I was a teenager, it's like I could spend, you know... Uh, I don't even remember what the price point was. It wasn't nearly as high as it was now, but, you know, 30 bucks on this book with 10 issues. Hmm. Or at the time, I could have bought 30 comics for $30. Yeah. <laughs> so at the time, I was going to buy 30 comics with $30. Um, and that's and then, you know, you just get too far along, and it's impossible to collect them all at that point because they are out of print, and they're just really expensive. I came on board the Epic Collection at the right time. They were just kind of gaining speed, um, and I, there were not an un, I think there were maybe um, not even 20 books out at the time mm. and so I was able to catch up on that pretty quick and now I'm on I just have to keep up with the, the new releases now what I, I think you've, you've mentioned this uh, many times on Facebook before but what lines will you not cross or like what thing what li- what uh, epics have you decided uh, that's not going to be part of my, my collecting well, I am not interested really in the Dark Horse Star Wars stuff or the Dark Horse Covenant stuff. Um, with no other reason than I've never really experienced it before. Uh, I never read Star Wars, any of the really, real extended universe stuff. But I have always, always been a fan of Marvel. Um, the reason I'm into comics is because of the Marvel Universe trading cards that came out in the early 90s. They... Just because I collected those cards, I became very aware of all of these characters and, you know, with the information on the back, very aware of all of their origins and stories. And so I really knew those characters even before I started reading the comics. And I've always attached myself to those characters. And that's the reason I'm not really even into DC that much, because mm. I never collected those card sets, I guess. <laughs> it's true. They, um, they had some, but they, they were nowhere near as prolific, because obviously the connection that Marvel had with the... Uh I guess was it Fleer at the time, like or yeah. I forget who it was, but like whatever card manufacturer they had, they had a direct kind of conduit to create all these things. Exactly, yeah, and they did really. Pictures were great. The artwork was really nice, and 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 because of that, I never got into uh, collecting really other companies until I left superheroes. Like I said um, earlier in this in this uh, interview. Um, uh, yeah, so I'm I'm on board for the Marvel produced Star Wars stuff because I like the creators because mm. you know it's still Walt Simonson and Chris Claremont and um, Joe Duffy and all of these people that I really enjoy their work in in the Marvel stuff. So I'm going to read those Star Wars stories, and uh, so far there isn't a Marvel epic like collecting Marvel produced material that I'm not going to pick up. I'll, I'm in for all of them, including Marvel Conan. Mm. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see what happens, and I'm happy to talk about those on my podcast for sure. Yeah, and what I've liked about your podcast too is that the times where you have kind of extended the reach to stuff that's not always necessarily going to be in epics. Like you had a, a big focus that I really appreciated on Generation X because even though it wasn't as much my favorite book as it was yours, I love the the creator interviews that you did to support that um, yeah. because you got people on there talking about you know. You got wasn't did you get the director of the Generation X TV movie? Like, <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> like, how did you track that guy down, and how did he want to talk about it? Like, it was just I was so impressed with that, and really marveled at that. Yeah, it's well, he Jack Shoulder is his name, and he is um, he just does a bunch of B movies and that kind of stuff. He's not a hugely prolific or famous um, a TV a film director, 
So, you know, he's actually pretty approachable. I just messaged him on Facebook, and he's like, yeah, sure. No one ever asks me about Generation X, so I'd be happy to talk about that. <laughs> so there you go. I have a, I have the pretty much the only interview with the director of the Generation X TV movie. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's what's so amazing. And again, it's such a benefit of your show is that when you do do interviews, again, it's one thing I kind of miss out sometimes on, my interviews end up being very career-spanning, which sometimes is good and sometimes is a bit of a drawback where you can really cycle in and, uh, like, you're talking about, like, sometimes 10, 15 issues when you're talking about actual books, so you can really focus on the nitty-gritty of an actual storyline in a way that I, I, I almost can't because I've created this giant purview for myself so how has it been being able to kind of dig in and for some of these creators talking about stuff that they don't always go to get asked about <laughs> and the number of times the creator will say hey that was a great interview uh, nice to to really focus in fact I talked to Roy Thomas just recently about what if and uh, and I haven't released that interview yet that's going to come out in a few weeks And but he he was like yeah it was just to focus in on something when you Thinking you know, people about people all the time, like thinking of their career for a amount of time. But then you miss out on talking about the influences of the characters. You miss out talking about the the very specific kind of moment in the hands of the Marvel writing. That's what I really like is being able to to get them to recall you know, sitting in that office or, or sitting at, in their home or wherever they were doing this work, what was happening at that time um, to to cause them to cre- create the way that they created or, or uh, among the stories or the characters in whatever way that they did. Uh, I, I think that's great. And I think also that I've had success, just people willing to talk because it's so focused, it's not you know, quote unquote, the same old questions over and over again. Oh, for sure. I, I, I've, I mean, I actually, I just talked with um, another podcaster on this episode about you know trying to come up with good questions for people. How do you prep for it? And always trying to kind of find the book that maybe they don't usually get asked about. And sometimes it works out really well. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, I a brief uh, there was a brief time when I uh, interviewed Mark Wade for the third time, and something came up, and I mentioned something about Thanos. And because he used Thanos in his Kazar run, and I could I could sense him going, "Oh man, don't talk about that Kazar," because I think a lot of people have given him shit over the years for his run on Kazar. And I'm like, "No, no, I really like it." And he's like, "Okay," and he kind of opened up about it. But it felt like that was something that he doesn't really want to talk about, mainly because he's gotten such flack for it. And actually, he said that uh, Jim Starlin has maybe never yeah. forgiven him for it either. Um, and in fact, in fact, the last time I communicated with Mark, I was like, "Hey, Mark, you know, would you come back on just to talk about Kazar?" He's like, I'm really swamped, but yeah, let's do it. And I'm like, I can't believe, I, I might be the only one who ever has a Mark Wade on Kazar podcast, and I'm okay with that. There you go. Yep, that's that's it. People, I, I think the, the creators really like to, to dig in on specifics rather than the, rather than just kind of, you know, shooting the breeze about whatever. Uh, yeah, it's, it's been really fun. I have a long list, an, in, an index. If you go to epicmarvelpodcast.com, there's an index at the top of the page, and you can get a list of all of the episodes and interviews. I've got something like, there's over 50 interviews now there, not quite as many as you have, of course, but um, very respectable amount that I've uh, accumulated over the years now. 
Oh, they're they're really special, and again, I, I they're so much fun again because you can use them as a companion to some of your episodes, and that I think makes it all yes. the more fun because there's a context there. It's not just you know, oh, like for, with me, as much as like I love talking to some of these people, it's like okay, well, Adam's talking to Ron Friends again. Whereas it's, if it's you, it's like oh, he's talking about Ron Friends because he's talking about this particular stuff. Yeah. I've got another great interview that I haven't released yet about I got Tom and Ron together talking about Thor and it's really really good so hopefully I'll be able to get that up sooner or later when when I get around to those Thor issues they're my favorite non-married married couple in comics <laughs> yeah right exactly because uh, the way uh, they just finish they finish each other's sentences like it's crazy it, their rapport is fantastic yep now, before I let you go, I mean, obviously I know, but I mean, you also work in publishing and you've been working on the For Better or For Worse uh, collections. How did, you, how did that come about and, and how did you start working in that part of the industry to begin with? Well, I've always wanted to make, to do something that would have some sort of impact in the comic world. Like I, I first and foremost, well, not first and foremost, but originally I wanted to try and get into the world of animation history because uh, I love reading about the history of, you know, the Disney and Warner Brothers and MGM Studios in the 1930s and 40s. Uh, and I wanted to try and do a book about that, about something leaving my mark on animation history. But really, like, there's there are so many books out there. What hasn't been covered? Hmm. I discovered... A, um, I, I just I discovered a, a, a very short-lived comic strip by Looney Tunes director Chuck Jones uh, called Crawford. It only lasted for six months. It was not a success, and uh, but it was by him. So I did a whole ton of research on you know where can I find the strips and who has the the ownership and all this kind of stuff, and I put together a, a pitch and I pitched it to Dean Mullaney on the Library of American Comics. And he loved the idea and brought me on board to, um, to help put this book together. And it was, it's called Chuck Jones, The Dream That Never Was. And, um, yeah, it reprinted all of the strips. Most of the, I think 99% of the strips we were able to find and uh, reprinting that book. And I wrote a huge essay that kind of chronicled his history uh, after he left Warner Brothers and went over to MGM Animation. And there's a animation historian called Michael Barrier who I admire. I have tons of his books and he is a huge fan of, of animation of this era and a, a very good historian himself and he calls my essay the best account of Chuck Jones's post Warner Brothers career so I was very flattered about wow. that. Yep. And then from there several years passed I just got busy with kids and whatnot, and then Lynn Johnston came to town in Vancouver. She actually moved back to town, and I had the opportunity to interview her for my old podcast. And while I was there, I said, hey, I would you like to reprint your entire comic strip because I know a guy who would want to do it? Um, you know, not just me, but Jean Mullaney of the Library of American Comics said that he would love to do that. And so she's like, yeah, you know what? My syndicate's not doing anything with the comic strip, so let's do it. And that's what kind of kick-started that. Of course, we had to do all the legal stuff and all that kind of stuff that goes along with it, but we're on, I'm just finishing up Volume 5. It's going to go to the printer pretty soon. It'll be out in a few months. There will be nine volumes total. I'm doing a lot of the editing. I'm writing essays for that, and I'm doing all the color restoring for the Sundays. So it's been very, very uh, busy, but a great experience. What does your relationship with her like? Um... 
I serve as um, basically the liaison between her and the company. Uh, we meet on a regular basis just to chat about things and talk. She's a wonderful, wonderful person. I, I super enjoy talking with her. Um, and uh, just making sure that the books are in line with uh, what she wants as well, because this is a represent, representation of her work. Uh, with the Library of American Comics, usually we're printing comics for creators who have already died. Mm. Uh, they're really, really old, and so we're dealing with the estate and such. She's one of two creators that this company actually works with where the, the creator is still living. And so we want to make sure that we involve her and uh, get her work and her voice in there so that this properly uh, portrays her work in the way that she can be proud of. And she is. She loves She says she loves the books. That's amazing. I didn't. I obviously, I, like I know you've been working on the projects. I had no idea that you were so instrumental in their creation as well. Yeah, yeah. It's it's been quite uh, quite awesome. I've uh, totally appreciated Dean and, and his guidance, uh, teaching me things and bringing me in under his wing, and uh, um, and it's just been a great experience. So I don't know after the the ninth volume wraps. I don't know what's next. We'll, I'll try and find another project that Dean will let me do, and uh, and we'll keep going. But I am very thrilled to be a part of it. That's for sure. I'm working on a project like that. Like, how involved are you with like kind of not restoration per se? Because obviously, it's not like the material is not that old. But there obviously is some. How involved are you in that kind of scanning of the original work? Well, fortunately, uh, she already had uh, all of her her dailies and Sundays scanned the the line work because they're currently reprinting it in newspapers now, and so. The stuff that she created in the seventies had to be rescanned and, and restored for printing methods. So that side of things is uh, is fine. However, um, however, the the Sundays needed to all be recolored because I had um, uh, when I was looking at them, they, she hired a new person to recolor all the Sundays for the current run of the newspapers, and they didn't follow the original guidelines, the original color guides. I mean. Oh. Uh, and they used a new or new coloring, like lots of gradients and all this kind of stuff. Like it didn't look like it was made in the in the eighties. And so when I pitched it to her, I said, you know, I really want to do these comics the right way. I want the readers to experience these the way that they were originally printed. So I want to restore the color back to the way that they originally were. So I had the black line, and then I had to take the the um, either the syndicate proof sheets that she had on file, or in some cases, it was just the newspaper tear sheets that she had on file, and fully recreate the color based on all of those. And so that's what I've been doing: is doing all of the Sundays, and making sure that they all look exactly how, or as close to exactly how they looked originally when they first entered the newspapers. Wow. And I'm currently in uh, the book that I'm doing now is the, the strip started in 1979, and the book I'm doing now is 1994 to 1996, and we're just entering the period where she started using computers to color, and the the artwork still isn't quite up to modern printing methods, so I still have to work on probably all of the Sundays up until about 2001, um, and then after that. According to what we see in her files, it'll be uh, easy going after that. <laughs> All of the files look like they should be okay without any sort of restoration. Wow. 
Now, had you read all of For Better or For Worse before, or were you experiencing some of this for the first time as part of this project? Um, some of it is for the first time. I have been a big fan of that strip for a long time, so I have read um, pretty much all of the books, and there are dozens of them. Uh, and um, I did a, a, a huge read-through again before I pitched it because I wanted to, and before I interviewed her because I wanted to be knowledgeable with content and reacquaint myself. There's some of the stuff that I've read um, uh, in the paper, and growing up, I'd read the, the, the comic section and really attach myself to those characters because I was kind of the same age as the brother and sister. Mm. And so, you know, when they were graduating high school, I was graduating high school. So, so it was kind of cool in that sense. Um, but going through these now, a lot of those sections didn't include all of the strips. She wrote some that she wasn't thrilled with, that she was embarrassed by or whatever, and, or she'd reorder them to tell a, a more cohesive story. A lot of the times, and especially in the earlier books, the Sundays weren't reprinted, or and when they were, they were only in black and white. So this material, um, it's I'm reading for the first time because it was just never available, and a lot of it, people... I'll, People are seeing it in color, the proper colors, for the very, very first time. A lot of it has never been seen like this since it was originally in newspapers. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's, I mean, that's an incredible amount of work, and it's incredible that you've been able to kind of take her life's work and really restore it to the way it was always meant to be, and then, you know, have people being able to have, you know, these nine volumes on the shelves. Yeah, it's very, very cool. Very thrilled. I hope people out there uh, can give these books a chance. They're not the most cost-effective books. Um, they're, they are very, they're very pricey, but that's because we are putting that good quality paper into it and good quality um, just everything. It, we're trying to put together the best possible package we can so that these books last a long time. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, they're basically the Marvel masterworks of For Better or For Worse. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> the question is, where's the Epic Collection? Oh, maybe after. We'll release it in paperback. <laughs> <laughs> um, but someone, someone out there wants an omnibus of it, so... Well, these are practically omnibuses. I mean, they're, yeah. we, they were collecting, like, over three years at a time, which is also unheard of in the comic strip collecting. Like, they're fatter books than any of the other mm. comic strip collecting books. Uh, they are all over 500 pages. Wow. So they're, they're pretty hefty. That's crazy. Yeah. Okay, well, you know, Curtis, thank you so much for uh, for taking some time today and uh, for chatting about both your own podcast and uh, the work on For Better or For Worse. And uh, I will endeavor at some point to have you on a proper episode of your own. Um, yes. And then uh, thank you again for having me on for as many episodes as you have. And um, I think I can't remember for Amazing Spider Man. I'm just the modern guy, right? I'm not the I'm not the Silver Age guy. That's right. Uh, but we still have a lot of modern volumes to go that's for sure we do my, my only ask is that i get to come on for gwen stacy's death you bet you got it <laughs> and uh <laughs> people can check out your podcast obviously there's tons of episodes to check out um a shameless plug of my own that i'm going to be on some episodes soon uh talking about daredevil so uh if people somehow have not yet had enough of my voice after 800 episodes they can head <laughs> on over to your podcast for some more definitely Thanks for having me on and giving me the opportunity to chat about stuff that I love. Absolutely. Well, it's great to have you. And, and uh, yeah, we'll have you back at some point for your own episode. Perfect. Thanks. Thanks. 
And that has been our 800th episode, 8th anniversary of Comic Shenanigans. Thank you for listening and for getting this far in the episode uh, for this final little uh, ender. Uh, But thanks again for listening. I really appreciate it. And uh, I appreciate everyone who took the time to download and listen to the show. Uh, Whether you're coming because you're a fan of Curtis or Dan or Eric, uh, or you've just been with Comic Shenanigans already, I really do appreciate you downloading and enjoying the episode. And hopefully you'll continue to to download the show. also, always putting out a call for more people to rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe to us on iTunes. Um, if you do uh, rate the show, or sorry, if you do review, put in a review for the show, if you could just let me know uh, which country you are from uh, so that I can make sure that I can see it and uh, read it on the show at an upcoming episode. I'm in Canada, so I mean, if you're Canadian and you put it up there, I'll see it right away, but if you're not, I won't. Um, so I do have to actually go through it uh, separately uh, with other countries to be able to review them, uh, view the reviews so if you do have a review uh just let me know uh what country you're in and putting it through through itunes so i can make sure to read it on the show in an upcoming episode uh thanks again and um you know it's been it's been a great eight years and hopefully for at least two more (laughs) uh at the very minimum so we can hit that big thousandth episode but thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time uh, with episode 801 coming out in a day or two which will look at comics that came out on wednesday august the 5th and uh, our next episode after that, episode 802, as I said, will either be Ian Churchill making his debut on the show or Roger Stern making his second appearance. So there's good stuff to look forward to. Thanks so much, and we'll t- see you next time. Bye-bye. Hey, no